0: As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, bacon and ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at
1: participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba da ba ba ba
2: Edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast, the September Fourteenth edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast, and with me as always, Zach Hubbard joining us today. Zach, how's it going, man? Pretty good. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, so, uh, how? How? Uh, first of all, um, where where are you staying at, man? Are you uh, are you safe? Is everything good with the storm so far? Everything
1: is pretty good so far here from Hurricane Florence here in Western North Carolina around the. Uh on the Triad, around the uh, Winston Salem and Greensboro area, it's pretty good right now. Seems like most of it is near the coastline right now, but most of North Carolina, it seems, as uh, safe for the moment. But I'm certainly safe right now. Hope you are too.
2: Yeah, man. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we'll we'll talk about you know the game being canceled a little bit down the line, but uh, uh, yeah, we're going to start by talking about last week, the East Carolina game. You know, just to kind of open us up. What were your thoughts, you know, sitting there in and, and what honestly probably seems one of the most disappointing losses in program history, probably right up there with the 1999
1: loss to Furman? Well, I, people have certainly compared it to that Furman loss, and I think it's along those same lines, mainly because this was not a good ECU team. ECU was 130th statistically in defense last year, so dead last in defense and held our offense to 19 points and then had tons of success against a defense that looked pretty good against Cal the week before. So this was definitely a disappointing loss. And just from sort of the eye test of looking at how the game was played, it really looked um, almost disaffected, almost like the players did not want to be there, did not want to get involved. It it was really a hard game to watch if you're a Tar Heel fan.
2: Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that, especially, I, I thought the biggest thing that turned the game um, on the offensive side of the football was the ejection of Antonio Williams. Um, I, I think we can kind of all say, um, you know, now that we've had some time to kind of step away from the situation, the in-game situation, that it was probably the right call that they made to eject him from the game. It was kind of an unfortunate, um, you know, call because the defender... Uh, Colby Gore gets tripped up by his own defender and uh, Antonio Williams comes in, kind of got the helmet-to-helmet contact. Um, But at the same time, I mean, you know, that's something that they're trying to take out of the game. So it's a little bit understandable, but, you know, it seemed like after that point, and I don't really know why, because I thought Jordan Brown was very effective in the carries that we saw. You know, they kind of went away from it. Was that kind of the turning point offensively for you as well? I would certainly say so just based on how well Antonio
1: Williams was doing in that first half. Uh, I mean, had almost, uh, what was it? 70 or 80 yards, had a couple big runs there. So really had some great success early in the game. And then it just seemed like either for one reason or the other, the offense just stalled without him. I mean, and I think it's a couple different pieces there. I think probably the offensive line played a little bit better in that first half than they did in the second. I think that, um, Probably play calling was a little bit different, though I would not say that play calling was particularly great in either the first or uh, second half. And I think also um, maybe the pass game just kind of fell to the wayside there. It really seemed to be a little bit more successful maybe in the first half. So I think kind of those factors together um, really of the team playing almost two completely separate and different halves, Uh, play more of a role than Antonio Williams, but he's certainly a piece in there and would have been uh, a big weapon for the offense to have.
2: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the offensive line. I thought overall the unit was better than the first game against Cal, Um, you know, especially for having a center in there and walk on Jonathan Troll, who I thought for the most part did well up until late in the game when there were a couple of snaps, I think, that got away from him. Um, I I thought in in run-blocking situations, they they looked really good. I thought pass protection, they had some of those moments again, but I felt overall they did a pretty good job of protecting Nathan Elliott. Um, I mean, am I the only one that feels that way, or do you think that the offensive line really took a step forward?
1: I think they certainly took a step forward. They definitely played better than they did against Cal, and I think a lot of people, um, offensive line in my opinion, To the layperson is one of the hardest positions to read on the field it's usually not where you're looking you're usually looking where the ball is opposed to the offensive line it's really only a a position that offensive linemen can correctly assess and uh Mike Ingersoll of Inside Carolina in his in the podcast they did this past week has basically said you know the offensive line has done a pretty good job through the past two weeks he really didn't see as much of an issue and to an extent, I kind of have to agree this past week. I thought, like you said, mm-hmm. they were a lot better in in run and pass protection outside of the uh, two bad snaps from Jonathan Troll. He did a pretty good job stepping in for starting center JJ McCargo, but for some reason or another, despite their efforts, they still were not getting it done. They quite often got in, you know, second and long, third and long situations. And then the uh, mainly the pass game was just too. Um, maybe inconsistent uh, right. before the efforts of the offensive line. I think that was more of the issue than anything is that though Nathan Elliott had more success passing the ball, over 200 yards passing, no turnovers, no interceptions, anything like that, it just didn't seem like they could regularly convert on third down. On third and long, they were still throwing those you know, 50-50 balls to – Anthony uh, Ratliff-Williams, or they threw some to DeAndre Brown. They were usually pretty well-covered. And Then another factor is the referees were mainly letting these guys, receivers and quarterbacks, make contact with one another. They weren't really calling offensive or defensive pass interference. So it was really just go up and make a play against your man mm-hmm. for most of the game, and uh, most of the time, the ECU defensive backs won those battles one-on-one kind of battling out with the wide receiver. So like I said, against the Cal game, which they, they put this in a little bit more versus ECU. I would like to see that shorter and immediate passing game a little bit more. Right. I think that kind of suits Nathan Elliott's skill set more. I think he's more of a, because of, um, the mechanics he has, it takes him a little bit longer to pass. So if you can give him a shorter distance to throw to, that will help out his skill set. And they did some of that, but they kept on throwing these 50-50 balls, and they would lead to repeated um, four and outs. So that was the main issue that I saw offensively.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. That's one of the main things, and I talked about it a little bit with Sam Doughton, um, who the uh, listeners will hear, hear just a few minutes after this. You know what? When I look at it, I don't understand why there are so many deep passes that are built into this offense right now. Because Nathan Elliott is not known to be a great thrower of the football when it comes to those deep, um, even you know, even down the middle of the field in those deep situations. You know, he's he's that guy that can really dink and dunk, and we saw that last last year. And, I mean, you know, sometimes people say, well, they don't really like that aspect of an offense. Dink and dunk is not going to win you games. I, I, I don't necessarily think that's 100% correct. I think you can win games with that style of offense. You've just got to be really, really good at it. But the thing is, is right now— The deep passing game just is not working. Diami Brown is struggling really to create separation against some of these college corners who are a little bit faster than some of the guys that he saw at the high school level. And that's going to happen because he's a true freshman. Anthony Ratliff-Williams is a go-up-and-get-it type of guy. And we saw, like you said, once you saw some of those intermediate, those 15-yard routes, maybe even some of those 12-yard in routes, that's where he started to sort of get things going. And that's what allowed him to start to get himself going. I think one of the other guys that needs to see a little more time out there is Rontavious Toe Groves. You know, we were kind of wondering coming in just how healthy he would be through the first two games. I would say he's probably been the second best receiver on the field for Carolina at the wide receiver position. I mean, he has the second most catches on the team. Now, that's not really saying much. That's only four. But at the same time, I mean, when I look at it, you know, it's just no one else is really emerging and it's kind of shocking because, you know, you felt like there was going to be someone else that would emerge. I think part of that is that the slot receivers really aren't able to get the football all that much because a lot of this stuff is going down the field. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's not quite how they're trying to build it into the playbook. Maybe that's just what Nathan Elliott is seeing and trying to get the ball out quickly so he's feeling safer with the lob passes. I, I don't really know, but it's kind of frustrating at this point with a quarterback that really just has struggled throwing the ball downfield. And like you said, you know, they, they I, I want to see more of those shorter routes, those five-yard routes, you know, create, allow these guys to create. You know, you've got Daz Newsome for a reason. I mean, we've seen some of what he can do in space on some of these punt returns. You've got Thomas Jackson, who, you know, yeah, I mean, he had four receptions the other day, but it only went for 14 yards. I, and you can see why, because he's not really out in open space. And then, you know, try some of these uh, these running back screens with Jordan Brown. You've got to get a little bit of better blocking, but this is what Jordan Brown is there for. He's one of those better receivers out of the backfield, probably in the ACC when it comes to running backs, So. You know, there there are some things that I think they can do to try to get this offense moving. And of course, number one is to run the ball more, but we've been asking for that for years, and it just does not seem like that's what Larry Fedora wants to do. Um, but I mean, at the same time, you know when when I look at it, I, I thought the offense at times looked better than uh, it did against Cal. I still don't think it was a perfect overall performance. I think there's a lot of things they've still got to work on, but, um, I mean, this this is the thing. And, and I'll ask you this question. You know, when you look at Nathan Elliott, do you think that by this game getting canceled this weekend against Central Florida, do you think that this is going to ultimately hurt his case when in Chaz Surratt returns to say, look, I've got this job locked up now that he's only going to have really one more week to try to prove that he is the guy?
1: Um, it might hurt his case a little bit, and really the question also is going into Pitt, which I'm sure we might talk about today or next week, is uh, how much is Cade Fortin going to play? I mean, Cade Fortin got in late versus ECU, and, you know, it wasn't really only through a couple passes, didn't have great uh, completion percentage because of that, and then was essentially throwing after the game had been decided, but looked pretty good throwing that football. Mm-hmm. Uh, still looked like a freshman, but as Larry... In the past, has said, and it said this season, he likes to kind of experiment with his quarterbacks and see what guys have and kind of develop packages. So I I fully expect to see Kate Fortin play more versus Pitt than perhaps we thought he would versus ECU or even versus Cal. And I think that hurts Nathan Elliott's um, sort of chances of walking down this job more than anything. Now, the number one thing for Nathan Elliott is to go up there and perform. Uh, I think that regardless of how many games that he plays, he has to go out there and prove to the coaches and to the team that he is the starting quarterback. And I'm not 100% sure that he has done that. He looked better this past week versus ECU, but still was inefficient, still not great in terms of completion percentage or accuracy, threw more yards certainly, and obviously dropped the number of turnovers. But there, there's still issues with sp- – the mechanics of throwing off the back foot there's issues
0: with seeing the whole field making
1: reads there there's really just uh, limitations that he has that are hard to look at and say he's going to improve on those in one game it's not impossible but it's hard to look at what he's shown us so far and say this guy's going to lock down the job when Chaserat comes back now we haven't seen Chaserat play for a unc team in a good while probably since last October, maybe early November, um, we don't really know what he's bringing to the table. We don't really know what improvements he's made over, uh, you know, the spring and the summer and the fall. We don't know what his mentality is after sitting out these first four games. So I think that'll be an interesting thing to look at. It's really hard to get information on that when you have a guy that's, you know, that we knew basically back in February was going to be sitting out these first four games. So that essentially decided – at least in some part, decided the quarterback battle. But I, it'll certainly be interesting. I'm not going to say definitively that it's one guy's job or the other guy's job. I think it'll be another quarterback competition. And uh, I, I think that there's some uncertainty in that position going forward into the season.
2: The, the thing about Nathan Elliott that I think really, really is, is hurting him right now is the footwork. He's really struggled getting his feet set in the pocket. Really, driving the ball with his back foot um down the field. I mean that, that that's where a lot of these under throws have come. and you know part of that in the first game was because of the offensive line play, you know when there there is the you, you see these guys coming off the edge or coming through the middle on blitzes. yeah, your feet are gonna get a little scattered. you're gonna you know trying to get the ball out, but At the same time, yeah, I I kind of agree with you that it's going to be hard to kind of fix that in one game. Now, Pittsburgh seems to be one of those teams that you can fix it against because, as we know, Larry has had their number since he's came to Chapel Hill, and last year, the best game, I would say, overall of Nathan Elliott's career so far was against Pittsburgh because I know he played great against Western, but it's it's Western Carolina, and that's an FCS opponent. To me, the Pittsburgh game, I think, showed his leadership, showed his ability to throw the ball Um, you know, the way that we know he is able to, if he's able to settle himself down. You know, these first two weeks, I think, have just been, they've been so tough for him. And here's the one thing that I still just don't get about what the coaching staff is doing. You know, led the team in rushing in in week one, and that was with nine second-half carries because in the first half, they didn't use them. Then this week against ECU, the coaching staff... And gave him just one carry, and it was not even a read option. It was that quarterback basically draw where he basically fakes as if he's going to you know look downfield and then it's a quick tuck um, and run upfield. That was it the whole game. And to me, Nathan Elliott's that guy that he is a lot more successful throwing the football when he is able to get out on the read option. It's a very weird thing, but whenever Nathan Elliott gets hit, he seems to play better. Um, I, I don't know why that is that it's kind of just a funny thing, but you know, it, it, it's whatever. I mean, if that's going to make him successful, I think the coaching staff needs to use him in the run game because to me, you know, from j- just from last year, I think most of us can see that Nathan Elliott and Chaz Surratt are really not that far apart when it comes to athleticism. Everybody wants to think that Chaz Surratt, is that much more athletic than really any of the quarterbacks that we have on the roster. I I don't know about Jace Reuter now that he's there, but last year everybody wanted to say that Chaz Surratt was head and shoulders the most athletic guy at that quarterback position. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that Nathan Elliott is pretty close to him when it comes to athleticism, and last year he actually had more rushing yards than Chaz Surratt finished with. So... Um, You know, I I don't understand why they're not putting that in, but you're right, though. When Chad Surratt comes back, and now with Nathan Elliott having just three games under his belt, if this team, especially if this team is 0-3, Chad Surratt's going to get a long look, and there's going to be, I I would be willing to bet he's going to see some time in that next game against Miami, especially because it's going to be a five-day turnaround. Um, but you mentioned Cade Fortin, so my question is, do you think that Cade has an actual chance then to potentially take away the starting job from both Nate and Chaz?
1: I think that that's a, a big long shot. I mean, like I said, we saw his big arm, but we also saw a, a kid that looked uh, a little bit nervous out there and a little bit wide-eyed, which is what you see from freshman quarterbacks. Right. I mean, that's, that's to be expected, so I'll I don't expect him to necessarily go out and win the number one UNC starting job. I, I certainly think that he could play a big role in this Pitt game if Nathan Elliott struggles or if Nathan Elliott's not getting it done. I, I think that we could see a lot more Cade Fortin against Pitt than we perhaps saw this past week against ECU. But as of right now, no, I don't see him taking that starting job away outright uh, with Chaz out there. But like I said, I mean, we still have to see – Basically, going forward, once we have Chats around back, we have to see how all of these guys are functioning within the
2: right. offense. So, here's my question because I know that uh, I, I know what I would do. Would you start Cade in this game against Pittsburgh? Um,
1: I would be very hesitant to start Cade in this game just because, A, I think that Nathan has earned the right to do so, um, and also because. I, the, the main reason that I think that he's getting as much time as he is is because the staff trust him as an upperclassman leader. Where it's harder to put that trust on a true freshman that hasn't played high school since you know early fall of the senior year. Right. Um, so I, I, I would not say that I would start Cade fordon I think in in my opinion, and I think going into the game that it's fairly likely that he'll get significant playing time. I think they'll experiment with that early in the game. I don't know how much time they're going to get individually. It really just depends on how each guy does. I think that at this point, after a few games, Nathan Elliott is going to have a shorter and shorter lease. He's going to have less and less opportunities that he can go out there and miss throws and not have this offense run the right way. And along those same lines, too, I think that adding the quarterback run will help either guy significantly. I think Nathan Elliott's better, probably better than that than Cade is right now. Um, I think that's probably Nathan's biggest asset and the reason, in my opinion, that it works so well is because when you add that asset of the read option, it becomes a true read option where either guy can carry the ball. Right. For most of the past two games, it's it's been well known that the running back's going to get the ball out of this option and the defense can key, key in on that. And while some run plays are successful when they know where the ball is going to go. Um, it, it really has allowed defenses to kind of take advantage of that and, you know, have some more plays for loss plays go for no gain and stuff like that. So adding that aspect will ha- will make, um, teams kind of respect Nathan a little bit more. It'll add a component to it The kind of, um, frazzles the defense a little bit when you have that. It, it, it's one more weapon, basically, that you have within your office. So I, I think that play calling will help either quarterback more. But as I said, I, I really don't know. I think that Cade Porton going to play and play quite a bit, but I would not start him.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I said this after the East Carolina game. I, I, I think I would. I, I would throw him out there and just see, you know, if, if what kind of spark that, that gives to the team. Um, You know, I mean, clearly it's not a a long term thing, but at least I think at this point you've got to give him a chance because from what we've heard, and this is where I think people are really, really frustrated with Coach Fedora right now. He said earlier last week that Cade Fortin can make every throw and then we see the struggles from Nathan Elliott. And they they took them so long to get Cade Fortin in there. I think that's where people are frustrated. If there's a guy on the bench that you say can make every throw, you know how is he not in the game? How is he not out there at least having some sort of impact? So, you know, I I think I'd give him a chance. You know, against Pittsburgh, a team that we've historically had some good success against. You know, I think it's going to be, if if I was the coaching staff, it would be a very uh, sh- run-heavy uh, start to the game and, and give him a, a chance to sort of settle in. But I think, you know, when I saw him throw the deep ball, it, it looked a lot more accurate. I think he stepped into a lot more of his passes. And, you know, I, I know, yeah, there's a little bit of the wide-eyed factor, but we've seen throughout college football that, you know, true freshmen, it's not quite as you know, look down upon to start a true freshman as it once used to be. I mean, look in the ACC alone right now. I mean, Trevor Lawrence out at, Clemson of course having a pretty big impact there now he's not starting but again he's rotating with Kelly Bryant and then I mean you look at guys like Sam Hartman who's over at Wake Forest another true freshman so you know these guys can come in and have impacts and if Kay Fortin really can make all the throws like Larry says I, I think why not throw him out there see what he's got of course Nathan Elliott will be there and maybe you even run sort of a two quarterback system something that we've you know hated in Chapel Hill for a long time but after you know going with the one quarterback this year i i think people are going to say we don't hate it as much as we once used to so you know i i would give him a shot i would see what he's got um and you know maybe potentially if he plays that well he could be in that group that sort of battles it out you know especially late in the season if you know, things get as bad as some fans think it's going to get where, you know, we could get eight or nine games into the year without a win. I don't know if that's going to happen, but, um, you know, if if it does get that bad, why not have the true freshman there that you can potentially put in and maybe find your quarterback of the future? Something that a lot of people right now just, you know, have a lot of uncertainty about with the two guys that were expected to battle it out here in the fall. So, um, you know, we turn to the defensive side of the ball here, uh, you know, I I looked at it as, you know, a a little bit of a confusing, I guess it kind of balanced out, you know, what we saw from them in the Cal game. Um, The run defense really, really struggled. There were a few times where guys just simply filled the wrong holes, like on one of the touchdowns, I think it was the Holton-Aylers touchdown. Um, You know, J.K. Britt just, you know, the the, uh, Cole Holcomb filled The B-gap and J.K. Brick came behind, should have taken the C-gap, but instead tried to help fill the B-gap, and it ended up leaving the C-gap wide open. You know, it it was just miscommunications like that. A lot of big plays running the football as well, especially late in the game for ECU. And, uh, you know, to me, that's got to be a little bit concerning because of the fact that, you know, we've seen how bad some of these run defenses have been at Carolina. And you're going up against an East Carolina team that has really, really struggled to run the football ever since Scotty Montgomery got to Greenville. So, you know, when you were watching the game, you know, what were your takeaways defensively um, from what we saw on Saturday? Well, my main
1: takeaways as a unit, I saw um, just a lack of focus and a lack of, you know, intensity in your play a lack of execution and those those are all kind of what we call coach speak those are all kind of vague terms but by that what i mean is i saw a defense that did not look interested in playing that game i saw like you said guys fill the wrong gap repeatedly and just not make tackles you know have a half-hearted effort to get to guys there were several instances where you had pass defenders that were in pass coverage they thought that they had made a play. They thought that they had deflected a pass or forced an incompletion where there was actually a completion. And they would give up on the play after that. There was a, a strip sack by Alan Cater where the ball came out and, you know, a defender didn't even, the defenders didn't even see it. And they weren't even going for the, for the turnover there. So there were, there were several instances where it just didn't look like the guys were playing as a unit. It didn't look like that guys were paying the most attention, didn't have the focus and intensity they had the week before, and I think it affected all three levels in a negative way. Uh, You started that defensive line.
2: The defensive line,
1: I thought, played the best out of any defensive unit we saw on Saturday, but they certainly felt the loss of Malik Carney after his performance against Cal. Uh, they, They failed to have as much of a pass rush, and the main issue with that is that ECU's plan of attack was using you know, short pass and running plays just to get the ball out early, to take away that advantage. So not only did we not have our best pass rusher, the ECU also used an offensive plan that allowed them to kind of uh, move the ball at will by using short passes and things like that. Mm-hmm. You go back from there, you go to the linebackers. Um, the linebackers, uh, I'm not sure if the linebackers were – better than the secondary or worse it's kind of neck and neck between the two because i did not see really any good play from any of them i would probably say the linebackers did a little bit worse um just because i saw them do less things uh if that makes sense i
2: i i got you yeah they they had less
1: impact where Mm -hmm. the main issue in the secondary was is they have those plays where they sort of gave up in pass coverage. And then they did get beat quite a bit. Um, they mainly picked on guys like uh, Patrice Renee and she, C.J. Cotman. And their quarterbacks had a pretty good day throwing the ball, too. There were some really good throws there by uh, Reed Hare and the ECU quarterback. But right. I, I did see more from the UNC secondary than I saw from the linebackers, especially after the linebackers had such a good week. Um, the week before at Cal, I really just never saw them of play. They were filling the wrong gaps. They really seemed like a liability and sort of that shorter intermediate pass coverage. So it, it, it was really hard to watch on the linebackers. Um, with the secondary, like I said, they got beat. But a lot of those situations in which they got beat were either misreads um, by the corners. There were several occasions, uh, such as last week, where um, the defense was playing sort of a soft coverage. So they gave up those kind of short underneath throws mm-hmm. um, to, to not get beat uh, long by the long throws, sort of that bend or break philosophy that people have liked to attribute to the Carolina defense for a number of years. Um, but then there were instances um, where defensive players made good tackles. I thought that really outside of one missed tackle, uh, Miles Woolfolk, the safety, had a pretty good game. So did J.K. Britt. So mm-hmm. I liked what I saw from the safeties. K.J. Sales did pretty good the whole game. I thought that C.J. Cotman also had a a decent game. It really just – he got beat on some balls that were thrown almost perfectly. So I think that there are still pieces here from this defense that really just had an overall bad performance. But, you know, once they got behind on the scoreboard and once the offense just was not moving the ball the same way it was in the first half, you feel, that, uh, you feel that sense of kind of uh, maybe not despair, but kind of, you know, what are we doing here? How are we going to get back from this? Uh, I, I certainly think that there was some, uh, some kind of pulling back from the defense there in the second half. and That's to be expected when uh, you're down big against a team that you were supposed to blow out.
2: Yeah, I think the main thing that I took away from it was really the lack of the pass rush really hurt this unit. You mentioned, especially early in the game, they were getting the ball out extremely quickly. And against some of those cover two, cover three looks where the corners are going to be backed off um, in in certain situations. Yeah, I, I thought they took advantage of that really, really easily. Um, you know, and and once they got in a rhythm, it was really hard to get them out of a rhythm. Uh, you know, Alan Cater, I think really was one of the only guys that really provided a pass rush at all. And he was a bit hit and miss, but I thought overall for really what is his first start, technically, I I, I thought he looked pretty good, but the rest of the defensive line, I, I mean, you know, Jeremiah Clark, I think had a pretty good day. We saw him in the backfield quite a bit. Uh, Jalen Dalton wasn't bad in run protection. Um, but you know, when you look at, you know, r- like you said, really that back seven, the linebackers, I don't think any of them had a horrible day. Uh, really they weren't put in a lot of cover situations. There was a, uh, we saw a lot, a lot of the nickel and dime packages on Saturday. I mean, there were plenty of times where both Bryce and Richardson and Trey Morrison were on the field at the same time. And, you know, from their perspective, I thought both of those guys had pretty good days. I mean, that's those are two guys no one's really talking about. But really, you know, the slot receivers really didn't have much of an impact. I mean, Blake Prohl only caught one pass that I can remember, um, unless I'm just blanking on another one that he caught. But really, I thought ECU did a lot of their damage on the outside, particularly early in the game against Patrice Rene, who right now, I, you know, he's really struggling. I, I thought, you know, what, coming into the season, the seniority, you know, he, uh, to me, I, I thought he got a little bit of a bad rap because of his freshman year. And, and, and you, you know, call it how you see it, that that game against Georgia, I thought those pass interference penalties were, you know, they, they were a little questionable, a couple of them, but um, you know, I think right now, C.J. Cotman is the better player. I, I saw C.J. Cotman um, you know, on multiple occasions. He was right there with the receiver. It was fantastic coverage. He did everything he possibly could, but you mentioned a great throw and really just a great catch. Both times, he, he had the ball caught over him by Trayvon Brown, who is probably going to be the next ECU receiver that's going to go to the NFL, so... You know, I, I thought overall he looked pretty good. KJ Sales, you know, he was thrown at six times and only had one ball that was caught. So overall I thought they looked good. I thought I thought the corners in general, outside of Renee, had a pretty good day. The safeties, you know, they weren't bad. It just felt like on some of those deep balls, you know, that Miles Dorn was really being missed back there. Because I just don't think that Miles Wolfolk has that sideline-to-sideline side type ability that Miles Dorn does. Um but at the same time you know look Miles Wolfolk I, I, I'm I'm with you I thought he actually did pretty well um especially for a guy that last year when we saw him in the nickel cornerback position he did have some troubles tackling in open in, in space so um overall you know I thought it was a, a solid performance back there but I I you know I just think once you, like you said especially in the second half once that offense got going You know, that unit, I I think they had just been out there for so long as well, and they started to wear down, and the lack of depth, I think, started showing a little bit there. So, you know, it is kind of a break that, you know, those guys will be back for that uh, September 27th game against Miami. But, you know, overall, I I wasn't, uh, you know, I I wasn't too discouraged. Um, You know, some fans were like, well, same old defense. Uh, I'm not quite there yet. I think if, you know, this team can get back to being fully healthy, if they can get back to having everybody on the field, I feel like, you know, that first game kind of showed that there is a bit of a pass rush there. I feel like the interior of the defensive line is is very good, and especially once Aaron Crawford returns. And then when you look at the linebackers and the secondary, I think the linebackers are still a little bit of a weakness just because of... The lack of depth there, the lack of experience depth there, but the secondary, I think, you know, they'll, they'll be perfectly fine, and I think they'll adjust. Against a team like ECU, who throws as much as they do, you're bound to give up some yards. Um, you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you would have liked to see a pass rush that could have helped to provide that, but um, I think we'll turn— We'll go to special teams here really quickly before we'll then turn and focus on uh, what was supposed to be this week's game. But uh, the reason we got to talk about special teams is just because of Freeman Jones, because Freeman Jones has been fantastic, Uh, you know, three for three the other day. So far, four for four on the season. Perfect. And uh, I mean, Freeman looks to be in a zone right now. You know, at this point, I I think he's a huge weapon for this team going forward. Do you feel the same way? I feel the same way too and also about Hunter Lent the punter that we saw quite a bit on uh, Saturday mm-hmm. they've both been
1: excellent for the special teams unit uh, punting and kicking the ball and those are really big weapons that, you, that people don't think about I mean he's three for three on Saturday that's nine of our 19 points well what'd
2: you say three for three on Saturday yes yeah mm-hmm. okay so three for three on Saturday that's
1: 19 of your points right there nine of your points right there Your 19 um Really, just uh, and then with punting as well, people don't think about punting. That's uh, what people in the industry like to call hidden yardage. Uh, you know, if you put a guy at his own 20 as opposed to his own 40, that's going to significantly decrease their chance to kind of make that drive down the field and score points. So, you know, the, those two positions, kicker and punter, are really right now, I would say, the two best that we've seen on the Carolina team, not because of any other position being particularly bad, but just that the punter and kicker have been very good and huge weapons uh, for Carolina so far.
2: Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, that's kind of been a a staple under Larry Fedora. I think it's uh, it's, it's not going to change right now. I mean you know, and that's, that's what we kind of need, especially with the offense that has struggled the way it has. And, you know, I mean, to have a guy that can flip the field position like Lent, to have the guy when you're in field goal range, like Freeman Jones, who can knock everything through the uprights at this point, that, that definitely helps. So um, yeah, we'll turn to, um, or, or let's, let's do this first. Let's do this first. Larry, right now, Coming off this loss, I feel, I mean, you had to have seen it. Everybody in Tar Heel, Twitter Nation has seen it. There is a lot of frustration right now. And, you know, we've kind of reached, I think, one of those points right now where you've kind of got to, you know, take a look at where this program is as a whole. As you're sitting here today, you know, Larry Fedora, how how hot is that seat that's underneath them right now?
1: I think the seat is about as high as you can get right now without uh, an absolute move being made I mean uh, like we said this this ECU game was going to be a crossroads for Larry Fedora and his legacy uh, at UNC and it certainly was not a a good sort of note um, to have here for his his time here Uh, there's frustration with players uh, both former and current there's there has to be frustration with the staff to some extent um, and there's probably frustration with, with Larry himself um, now I I do think that I think that it's a little bit um, hasty to imagine there being any sort of decision being made here in the season personally I, I don't usually like those you really only want to make those moves if you know who the replacement is going to be And right. I don't think that they do I do think that they have started the process as low. that. I think they're certainly making a look, but I'm, I'm not going to say this definitively uh, what his job status is going to be come 2019. I do think that there's um, a much more a barrier right now for Larry Fedora um, sort of to be successful this year than there was perhaps before. I mean before we discussed, it's really just make a bowl game and then try to be competitive uh, You know, with your in-state. The rivals, I think at this point, it's got to be a little bit more than just a bowl game. It's got to be, you know, a few more wins. And I, I think personally, the biggest thing to kind of uh, make or break Larry Fedora's year this year is going to be those two rivalry games. It's going to be, right. you know, Duke and State because as of right now, not only in. Uh, not only in playing the games, but in recruiting, UNC is losing in both of those fields. Uh, UNC's recruiting class this year, while there's guys we like on it, as we've said in previous
2: podcasts, it, right. it leaves a little bit to be desired. It's in, I believe it's 66th in the nation
1: behind both Duke and State and even ECU. So right. there, there's certainly issues that we've seen recently with Larry Fedora. Um, over these past couple of years, and, and I think that, you know, going out there and possibly winning at Duke and State are going to be huge for what happens in the future. I think those are sort of requirements right now for Larry Fedora. I can't say definitively, like many people have said in the past, that buyout. It's really hard to determine. Uh, what the athletic director, Bubba Cunningham, wants to do. Uh, because he's so new as an athletic director, it's hard to know the precedent there of, of what he kind of is looking for in this program. I, I think right now a lot of uh, UNC fans, uh, coaches, students are really looking at you know, what is the UNC program? What are the standards in place for how this program should be? And As of right now, I can't say. I think that might be a topic for a whole different podcast in the future, but there's a lot of people right now that aren't sure that Larry Fedora is performing up to the level that should be expected or even demanded of UNC football. So as you said, I certainly think that the seat is hot, uh, probably about as hot as it can be. But like I said, I don't think there's going to be any decision made here in this in the season, I don't think there's going to be any, you know, interim coaches or anything like that unless it gets really bad. If it gets really, really bad like you mentioned there may be something like that. When it gets really, really bad like that, when you're looking at, you know, a losing season or even uh, three and nine like we had last year, or worse, if that becomes, you know, your doomsday scenario, who knows what would happen. At that point, you know, the gloves are off in terms of what you're doing in terms of a buyout or an interim coach or things like that. But as of today, trying to be optimistic, trying to be hopeful, um, I would say that the decision will most likely be made after the season, uh, whether Larry remains the coach going into 2019 and the future.
2: Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, There probably will not be a move in season, and that's because, like you said, you know, you've got pretty much the only way you're going to make a move, at least this early in the season, is if you know that your future coach is on your staff. And I don't think that that's even remotely true. I, I don't think the only one that I could think, if Larry was to get fired and if he was to reach that 0 and 9, uh, you know, 0, 0 and 10 type mark then yeah, then they might move on and, and just have an interim guy for maybe the last three or four games of the year. Um, you know, at, at the max, I think... Probably three would be the max. I wouldn't even say four. I'd say two or three games of the year. Um, yeah, I would say maybe that would be John Papuchis, but there's no way that he is going to be the next head coach. It, it's going to be somebody that's from the outside. The only other way that you could make a move this early in season is if you were to get a guy that currently is not coaching. So a guy like Les Miles, a guy like Mac Brown, who a lot of Tar Heel fans want back, or a guy like Hugh Freeze who had a lot of success at Ole Miss but has some of those concerns with the NCAA violations, you would have to convince one of those guys to not only take the job, but to take the job midseason and take over a team that is not theirs at all and come in and try to you know, somewhat rectify what's going on and potentially get back to a bowl game. I don't see that happening. So I agree with you. And you mentioned that staying, you know, beating State and beating Duke is going to be the important part of the schedule for Larry Fedora. Those are the two most important games. You could not be, um, I mean, you could not be more right. Those are exactly what he, ha- that's what he's got to do. He's got to beat them because now you are one in three against ECU in your career. You're seven and eleven against in-state opponents that you've faced. And so far you have a winning record against a grand total of zero of those teams. So you've got to do something. I mean, state I think is a really big one. If you can beat them, that's huge. But to me, I think Duke is the biggest one for him because it's on the road and that team, while they are talented, I mean, they just lost quarterback Daniel Jones this past week, Cornerback Mark Fields, who's one of their big time players. So that team is going to be beatable. He's got to find a way to win that game. But, You know, right now, I I think, you know, you got to kind of take it one week at a time. And I think the best thing that could have happened for really the entire program was for this game to be canceled. Because it gives everybody sort of a minute to take a step back and potentially breathe and, and say, okay, what can we do to try to get this thing back on track? The players... The fans who, you know, right now are still just in – some of them are still in an uproar. I think some of the people have sort of calmed down just a little bit. Um, but, you know, at, when I look at his overall job security, you know, I think I'm kind of where you're at. I don't think his seat can get much hotter. I'm, I'm pretty sure at this point he's about at the point where he's going to – you know, it, 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 he's going to have to do something drastic because, you know, this – these people are just frustrated and you look like you mentioned at the 2019 recruiting class I looked at it the other day and through 24 7 sports it's ranked as the 58th best recruiting class in the country so okay it might be a little bit better than yours but it's still not good um 13th in the ACC the only team that is behind us is Syracuse and that class if I remember correctly has 7 guys committed. So if they start getting more guys to commit, that class could even rank ahead of our class and put us last in the ACC. Um, which is not what we need. That is not at all what we need coming off what was the best recruiting season of Larry Fedora's career. But you can see that 3-9 and nine season is really hurting. And at this point, I mean, ranked 58th in the country, I want to just give you guys some perspective as to who is ranked ahead of the Tar Heels in this recruiting class. Of course, State's ranked ahead of us because they've had what, what has been a really, really good recruiting cycle for them. Uh, Duke is ranked ahead of us which is not great, but at the same time, you know, they've started to make some moves under David Cutcliffe. Wake Forest is ranked ahead of us. Dave Clawson's getting a little momentum going there. East Carolina is ranked ahead of us, which I I don't really even know how to explain that. Now, this is the thing. If you want something to ease it just a little bit, Central Florida is actually ranked behind them in this recruiting class. They're only ranked behind them by one spot. But East Carolina has historically recruited this state pretty well. But at the same time, for them to be out recruiting Carolina. I, I just, I don't think that's feasible. And then the big one to me and the one that it just blows my mind is North Texas. They are actually out recruiting us. Seth Luttrell is out recruiting Larry Fedora at North Texas. And you might say, well, you know, sometimes you want your former assistants to maybe be you, 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 to get to that level where they can compete with you or sometimes even be better than you in certain things like that. Maybe not on the field, you know, sort of like, Let's say a Kirby Smart at Georgia. Well, there's a difference. That's a power five school that Kirby Smart uh, coaches at. Larry Fedora coaches at a power five school and is currently getting beat by a group of five team in North Texas that, what, won their division two years ago, didn't win it last year. Now they're ahead of him on the recruiting trail. I mean, to me, that's just mind-boggling. You know, great job by Seth Luttrell. That's not a knock at all on Seth Luttrell. Seth Luttrell has done an amazing job in North Texas. The fact that, you know, if you look at where they were before he got there, it's amazing. But Larry Fedora, to me, that's the biggest thing that concerns me is, you know, yeah, on the field, the product has kind of, I wouldn't say slowly. It was a pretty quick turn. But it deteriorated a little on a little bit of a slower scale, as opposed to the recruiting, which literally has been like a flip of a switch. You went from the best recruiting class you brought in, brought in to the worst recruiting class that you brought in. So, right now, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of concern uh, when it comes to these, this Tar Heel fan base, and for good reason. Um, you know, I, I guess when I look at You know The situation going forward, it would probably be late in the year or after the year. So then you start to think of some of the names that come to mind. If you had to make the first call at the end of the season, let's say that we're sitting at the end of the season, who would your first call be with the guys right now that are probably going to be on the market? Well, if
1: I had to make a first call, it's really hard to say right now because there are several guys that are – Uh, you know, that are power five caliber head coaches, either former head coaches or current. So there's, like you said, there's the Mac Browns, there's the Les Miles, Um, there's the Hugh Freeze. Uh, Some people have thrown around names at other schools, like, you know, P.J. Fleck uh, at um, Minnesota, Jeff Brown at Purdue. Some people have even thrown out James Franklin at Penn State. I don't think that's going to happen. People have thrown out Lane Kiffin. They've thrown out all these things. And probably any of those guys would be kind of your first call. But in terms of guys that I'm somewhat excited about, maybe some dark force candidates, if I go in that direction, are guys like um, uh, Scott Satterfield out of uh, App State and then Mike Houston out of... uh, James Madison and FCS program, and you know, people look at that. They look at, uh, they say, "Oh, it's App State and it's James Madison. How can they really make the switch to the Power Five level?" And there's certainly that concern. But both of these guys have shown that they know how to run a program. They know how to get get, get kids involved. They know how to teach fundamentals, and they know how to win, plain and simple. And you know, you look through how coaching ranks have gone in the past. A lot of the times, guys that get uh, the Power 5 jobs are not guys that have held those jobs before. I mean, uh, every coach has to get the first Power 5 job. Nick Stittman has to get his first Power 5 job. Urban Meyer, uh, coming to Florida, got it out of a Power 5 job. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the guys that were kind of at the top level of coaching uh, college football have had to work their way through the ranks, so uh, I, I, I don't think that Carolina fans should be hesitant to go two guys that are proven winners just at the lower levels there's obviously still concern there i don't really see any guy right now that's a home run higher uh if the decision were to be made to have a new carolina head coach it's really just uh something that we'll have to wait and see and uh see who the administration uh reaches out to and see where the interest is uh, i think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty surrounding the new head coach. I don't think that there's really anyone out there right now that's proven that in the current uh, sort of era of college football that they're ready to win. Um, so I, I think there's uncertainty there. There's uncertainty, like I said before, in terms of what the expectations and investment in the program is. Um, when you look at how are your Going to distribute funds, how you're going to, you know, build a staff depending on, you know, if coaches are retained from the current coaching staff if there's a completely new staff, kind of how those things get worked out. So it's really it's difficult to speculate. It seems more and more likely like those are going to be questions that we'll be asking um, this winter and then going into the spring as this new staff might uh, end up being built. But it's really hard to say as of right now without knowing sort of
2: who's on the market and then where um, the athletic director is looking at. Yeah, Scott Satterfield, I think, is a really great name. He's a guy that was, you know, I mean, he's, he's pretty much born and raised in North Carolina, so... He's a North Carolina guy through and through, and what he's done with App State, I don't think anybody can discount that. Yeah, you can say, well, that's a group of five school, but, I mean, they almost went into Happy Valley and won with one of the youngest teams in the country. So he's a guy that is really, really intriguing, and I, I know he knows how to recruit. It's It could be interesting to see what he could do if he was to come to Carolina. I mean— you know, I know the names that everybody's going to want to start out with. First of all, okay, you can put the call into them. You're lucky if you get the man's answering machine. Bob Stoops is not coming to Chapel Hill. That will never happen. Um, you look at some of the other names that we mentioned that are off the field. I feel like, you know, Wes Miles and Mac Brown. You know, Mac Brown especially. He he has been out of coaching for so long. The college game, you know, you could say, well, we saw John Gruden come back to the sideline in Oakland. I mean, we don't even know how that experiment's going to go. But the thing is, with the college game, it adjusts so quickly. I mean, just look at the first two games right now for Chip Kelly at UCLA. I think people thought he would come in and there would be some, uh, uh, you know, almost automatic turnaround. Maybe not to the point of, oh, UCLA competing for a playoff spot, but that was a guy that has not been removed for that long at all. And, you know, when you, you look at what they're doing right now, he, it just seems like his offense isn't all that affected because people have adjusted to what he did. And, you know, that's what we saw with Mac Brown and Les Miles. People had already adjusted to what they were doing back then bringing it back out. Now, I don't think is really going to make that much of a difference with those guys and you know, I, I mean, I, I just I don't know if either one of those guys has what it takes to sort of reestablish a program. It's going to take a little while, especially Mac Brown. It's going to take a couple of years to reestablish your way of of playing, which is a lot different than Larry Fedora's. And really, the question is, does Mac Brown have that much time that he wants to put into this? Does he have, you know, five or six years that he can put into, you know, getting everything, you know, eventually to work out the way that he wants it to work out? Um, you mentioned there were no real home run hires. I think Hugh Freeze would be if there weren't the concerns with the NCAA violations, because, I mean, look at what Hugh Freeze did in the SEC. Uh, I mean, with Ole Miss, he had them, you know, at one time, number one in the country. And, uh, I I mean, when you look at it, or number two, number two, that's right, because uh, uh, Mississippi State was number one that year. But, I mean, you see he's gone and and, and beaten Bama, so this guy knows how to coach. It's really just the concern of of the -the off-the-field stuff, I think, that, you know, keeps people away from him. But, you know, if you could overlook that, if if which I think would be very, very tough if you're Carolina, considering you were under the NCAA cloud for how many years? What, I mean, seven or eight at least. Um, but probably a little bit before that, I would like to believe. I would assume that the NCAA was sort of sniffing around before that as well. But, You know, it's kind of hard to say, ah, just push that to the side and go and hire this guy. But, yeah, no, you're right. I think, you know, it's kind of a wait-and-see type thing. I really do feel like more and more this is a conversation that we will be having at the end of the year. And, you know, I I think, you know, it's kind of like any other time that you have a coaching search. You're going to have your list. You're going to have your guys that you really like. You're going to have your guys that maybe you're you're not quite as high on. And uh, eventually, what's probably going to end up happening, it'll land somewhere in the middle. And um, I mean, there are some really good guys out there that I think are, are hireable, and guys that would want to come to a job that really, you know, is is not a terrible football job. Um, you know, one of the things that they they were talking about, and that the uh, the uh, fans here will hear in just a minute when Josh Parcell steps on, um, you know, it. Is there an appetite to win at Carolina when it comes to football? Or is, you know, Carolina under this perceived notion um, that, you know, basketball is all that anybody cares about? Is is that the truth or do you think that there's an appetite to win? Uh,
1: well, I, it's really hard to say. I mean, it's something that it, it's hard to say in definitive statements. Um, but I don't think that it's impossible to have, you know, a school or an athletic department that is dedicated to both. We've certainly seen that over the years with schools like Oklahoma, Michigan State, UCLA, places like that, maybe that aren't um, at the powerhouse level, maybe in one or the other at this point, but certainly that are dedicated to
0: investing in their athletic programs. Um, And I think you've even seen that in-state. You've seen, maybe not,
1: level of, you know, an ACC contender, but they've certainly raised the bar in terms of what they do uh, on the football field. And as of right now, as much as it pains me to say it, you can see it with NC State that's raising their bar in terms of what they're doing on the football field. To an extent, Wake Forest has done this as well. So schools that are traditionally basketball schools, if we want to put that moniker on them, are raising their level of play, are investing in their football programs. And it's really... uh, it shouldn't be kind of an excuse or an expectation that UNC should not invest in that purely because they have another successful sports uh, sort of team or sports program on campus. That being said, I think that after the Larry Fedora era, there needs to be some sort of culture change, not only with, with the football team, just in general that comes with the coaching change, but perhaps within the football program as a whole in terms of how it invests uh, in the team and the effort it puts forward. Maybe I I think there needs to be established more of an expectation, um, not formally, obviously, but just a general expectation among, amongst fans and amongst, uh, you know, coaches and players about what it means to be part of Carolina football, because I feel like that's been a little vague for a while. I feel like
2: through success or failure. Oh, you're still there? Oh, I think we lost him. Uh, yeah, so guys, as you heard the connection going in and out there, we're going to try to get him back on. But, you know, really what I think, you know, he was talking about really was just you know, the fact that, you know, it's, it's kind of on the fans to, you know, buy in and sort of, you know, try to help these guys out. And, you know, right now, I I mean, it it definitely is, uh, I I feel like a little bit tough uh, with the fan base, you know? Uh, So yeah, Zach, uh, yeah, sorry about that, man. I don't know quite what was going on there, but I, I think we've got it uh, reset here for you. All right.
1: Good. Uh, As what I was saying. Uh, issue as of right now is not that I am unsure of whether UNC has, you know, a winning culture or is, you know, uh, sort of content to see where the chips may fall. I really think that it's unknown right now. It's really hard to tell. So I, I think that it, it, there has to be sort of a. Uh, it really starts with the coach, and if that's Larry Fedora, that's great, and if that's a new coach, that's great as well. There needs to be sort of an establishment of a standard of of play and then of competition, maybe not in terms of x number of years, but there there certainly needs to be more of a a feeling of legitimate def- definition of what it means to be U N C football and what sort of that standard is.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, I feel you, and uh, I, I mean, yeah, part of it, I think, is, is on the fan base, you know, everybody, you know, seems to want to, you know, criticize and everything like that, and I, I mean, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of it myself, but, you know, you've got to show up on Saturdays and be there for these guys. I saw a lot of people saying they were going to give up their season tickets, and, you know, even though I'm not going to be able to be there this year, I really wish I could be there um, more this this season, but because of, you know, other, Uh, responsibilities that I've got for this year, Um, you know, during, you know, college football Saturdays. Unfortunately, most of the games I won't be able to make. But the thing is, is, man, you know, everybody wants to, you know, come out and and really criticize. Mostly if you're criticizing the players, you know, that's one of those areas where, you know, look, I mean, these guys, to me, I I don't think there's a, a ton of room for criticism. I think, you know, in general a lot of these guys have played hard and I think that, you know, really, you know, one of the things that these these fans have, they I mean they have a little bit of unrealistic expectations. I mean, there were people I think coming into this year, especially towards the end of the offseason that were pretty much expecting this team to win eight games, nine games and when they see that, you know, it's a tailor the expectations. You can't be you know, expecting these guys to come off a 3-9 and season and all of a sudden be back in contention for the ACC Coastal. But, you know, at at the same time, it's like you said, I think there needs to be some sort of an established, you know, sort of, I, I guess, a general, not requirement, but, yeah, sort of an expectation mindset where, look, you know, when you go in, we want, you know, all we want is about seven or eight wins. I think that's kind of where everybody's at. Be in contention for that ACC um, Coastal, and, and I think that's where uh, that that's where a lot of people are, are satisfied at. As long as you're there, uh, that that's kind of where that they, they want to be. And I think that's almost the direction that the athletic department is going. Now the thing is, I mean, look. If you think that they don't care about football there, look, I can tell you one thing. Bubba Cunningham cares about football because Bubba Cunningham came from Notre Dame. So, you know, football is in the blood in South Bend. It's just how it works. So, you know, that's what happens when a guy like that comes. Of course, there's going to be a little more focus. We've seen it with the football facilities. So. You know, look, they're putting some money into it. It's just, you know, maybe now is the right time. You've got the money into the facilities. It seems like it's kind of reached that point with Larry. Maybe this is where you start fresh and sort of show the fan base that, look, we're starting fresh because we believe in this football program. And yeah, I, I don't think we're on, you know, I mean, people, I saw people saying we're heading in the same direction as Kansas or we Indiana, you know, th- that, no, I don't think that's where we're at at all. Most people probably don't realize this, but really before the Dean Smith era football was what was big at Carolina. And even during the, you know, d- during some of those, early stretches with Dean Smith, you know, in the 80s, football was still very, very popular among the Carolina fan base. It's sort of faded here, um, you know, once they got into the late Dean era and the, you know, early you know, Roy era. So, um, but at the same time, you know, look, this this school is, is a team, I mean, this program is—it's a good job. It's something that I, I feel like, you know, at least from the fan base, there's an appetite to win. There's there's an appetite to, you know, be in that ACC coastal contention every year. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you're a coach out there on the free agent market, this is not a bad job, no matter what anybody tells you there are passionate fans here there are people that are invested in this program and and that's something that to me I, I think could end up landing them someone exciting um you know maybe like Elaine Lane Kiffin but with with Lane Kiffin you got to just kind of know that there's always a chance that he can leave at any time. So, um, you know, we'll turn and and look what was supposed to be today's game. Just a couple of really quick topics or today's game, Saturday's game. Um, What was supposed to be Saturday's game now being canceled. You know, when you looked at it, You know, Danny Cannell was one of the guys that was extremely critical of the games being canceled when they were on Tuesday. And uh, Virginia Tech, you know, I'm pretty sure you've seen some of the comments they've had about their game with East Carolina. You know, when it comes to our game, did you think it was the right call at that time?
1: At the time, based on the information that we had, I certainly think that it was it was the right call. And I, I. Saturday, it's going to get wet in Keenan State. It would not be a good thing for a game. And at the time, there were concerns of, of safety. I mean, the, the campuses are, have basically evacuated. The people that have the ability to go home have. So it's not just that, you know, everyone's there and they just canceled the game. There, there are serious efforts by numerous colleges uh, in North Carolina and South Carolina to cancel their games and, you know, just keep everyone safe. So I, I don't think that. I really didn't agree with the criticism from uh, from Virginia Tech and from Danny Canal. I mean, the, the, this is people's safety that we're talking about. It's more important, you know, than football. Uh, there's chances that these games can be made up. It's, it's not really a huge deal in comparison to people's, you know, safety and people's lives. Um, and then just from the sort of the pr- perspective of this, UFC, uh, or UCF rather uh, is <laughs> is is a good team. Uh, they're a very good team, led by a very good uh, quarterback. Some would even say a Heisman level quarterback, Mackenzie Milton. So this was not a game, despite being at home against a Group of Five team that I was very confident in. And you know, like you said earlier, it gives the Tar Heels another week to you know get some practice in, to to take some room, to breathe, to kind of reevaluate mm-hmm. what they're doing, uh, maybe to you know like. Uh, spark um, a flame under the season and you know, get some motivation back, get some intensity, get some focus, and really just be more prepared for that pick game. Um, so I think that the cancellation of this uh, UCF game is an overall good for UNC. I don't think that it was going to be a particularly close game. Uh, I think that if UCF played a lot of Power 5 teams this year, they would have a very good chance of being beating quite a few of them. This is not, though there are pieces missing, this is very much still a similar team to the team last year that went undefeated and beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. So I don't think that UCF, despite being, you know, uh, in the American Athletic as a team that should be overlooked, I think it helps out UNC's season a bunch. Um, and I think it, it, it's helpful overall.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think the thing that really was kind of forgotten about from these college football analysts and, and really from Virginia Tech as well. You know, when you you look at why these games were canceled and I listened to Larry Fedora live on Tuesday night and Rick Steinbacher, I think, really just kind of put one of those, he put it out there and really just kind of showed people, look, you know, this is why we did it. It's not because of the game. It's It's because... These people coming from the coast need somewhere to go. Some of these people don't have family that live in other parts of the state or they have family that lives on the West Coast. They're not going to go all the way out there. They need a place to go. And these hotels that were taken by, you know, football fans that were coming into town, you know, that's not the necessity. So there was a chance to free those rooms up and give people a place to stay in Chapel Hill, in the Raleigh area. Um, You know, in in an area that was generally, you know, supposed to be at least in a better situation than out on the coast. And by, you know, that that was kind of the main thing. You know, they're focusing on people's safety. This is not the focus on... You know, oh, just we're worried about playing a football game. Sometimes there are things, believe it or not, that are more important than football. I mean, trust me, I love football. I think uh, what what Tennessee is doing is fantastic, where they're inviting fans that, um, you know, are, are being displaced because of the storm to come free of charge to the game and, you know, just Come and watch Tennessee play. I mean, you know, you can make all the jokes you want about it, but I think it's I think it's fantastic to have you know just you know some uh, somebody step up and say, look, you know, we'll 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 let you enjoy a day, you know, and just come in and have some fun and kind of get your mind off of what is going on. You know, I think everybody's rallied around it pretty well, but to see guys like Danny Cannell and 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 the athletic director at Virginia Tech that were really fairly critical of the decisions to cancel these games, I, I think it was just, it was just irresponsible. And, you know, both of those guys, I, I think need to take accountability for that. Um, but ultimately, you know, as we look at it now, it's probably not going to affect um, Chapel Hill as much as it was initially thought to affect Chapel Hill. Um, but at the same time, look, I mean, even from, if we're focusing on, you know, a a football perspective, This is not the worst thing that this game was canceled. You mentioned it. UCF is a really, really good football team. Mackenzie Milton, yes, he is definitely a problem. That entire offense is really going to be an issue. I mean, that team really has not slowed down much from last year. You know, even with, um, you know, Scott Frost moving on, Jay Hobson's come in, and and the transition has been really seamless. But, you know, when I I look at it, I think, you know, in the rain, that's not really – the type of environment that you want to play in if you're trying to get your offense going after it struggled for two weeks. Um, you know, who, who knows? I mean, at least, you know, we we would have to run the football more. One would believe, but at the same time, yeah, it's ultimately about the safety of fans. And, you know, one of the other things that Rick Steinbacher said that I think helped in making this decision is he talked a little bit about playing during Hurricane Matthew back in 2016 And it's like he said, you know, sometimes you make a decision and it may be right, it may be wrong. You got to learn from it. I think they made that decision back in 2016 to play. And then after a while, they kind of saw, you know, hey, this wasn't the right decision. And when we're faced with another decision like they were this week, we're going to make the call to just call it off and not worry about it. And I think that's one of the main reasons why they did what they did. But um, yeah, I I mean, it, it, it... it gives these guys a chance, everybody, to kind of reset. I think this team still, um, from what I heard from Sam Doughton, and you guys will hear him in a moment. It, he's it, it, he's still pretty confident. A lot of these guys are still, you know, nobody's really bailing on the season. Nobody's pointing fingers. Uh, you know, so far, you know, everything's kind of remained intact. Yeah, I mean, it's been too, There there have been two tough losses. But at the same time, you know, these guys feel like, look, there's still a a little bit of hunger from last year. And once they get that first win, potentially they could get something rolling. So, you know, who knows? Maybe Pittsburgh's that game that gets it started. Then you got Miami just five days later. So, you know, yeah, it could be, you know, helpful that that game is five days later because who knows? If you come out of that game with a win against Pittsburgh, you could roll over that momentum and, and keep it going just five days later against Miami. So, you know, uh, I, I, I think right now th- this, the cancellation, yeah, it's disappointing, but at the same time, it, it definitely helps this team. So, um, last question and then we'll get you, we'll, we'll, we'll get, uh, yeah, out of here and, and get rolling towards hopefully, uh, what will be the September 22nd game against Pittsburgh, barring anything major. Um, you know, what What are you going to do with your Saturday now that Carolina is not going to be on television?
1: Well, you know, I'll probably try to watch some other games. I'll probably try to maybe catch the, uh, you know, the um, Pitt and Georgia Tech playing this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're playing around noon or 1230, so uh, probably look through that. Um, try to see if I can sort of scout out either team for for future games. Obviously, Pitt's coming up soon, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, Georgia Tech will be a game down the line. And then, besides that, really just you know, try to stay out of the rain, out of the wind, stay safe. Um, look look at things. Uh, try to get prepared for you know the Pitt game coming up the
2: week after. Yeah. Sounds, yeah. Sounds like a plan. That's my plan. No, uh, no Carolina football. So just a heavier dose of college football to get me through. But, uh, yeah, I will definitely, that Pitt Georgia tech game is going to be one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And, uh, you know, if, if, if Georgia Tech can get that win, I think that would help us out a little bit, um, you know, going into that game against Pittsburgh. So, yeah, man, thanks uh, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, definitely stay safe. Uh, you know, we'll we'll hopefully talk to you again next week. Uh, we'll try to do it a, around Wednesday a little bit earlier. So, um, yeah, yeah, just uh, stay safe and, uh, you know, just call me whenever you get a chance next week, man, and we'll get this thing on, right? All right, sounds good. All right, man. Yeah, what's up, man? Yeah, how's it going? It's Anthony. Uh, so, yeah, man. Hey, I really want to thank you for stepping on. Um, you know, I uh, I guess I'll start giving you a little bit of background. And for anybody that doesn't know, Josh Parcel, the host of middays here on WFNZ in Charlotte. So, um, you know, a guy that knows a ton about college football. And I wanted to start by asking you, you know, when it comes to the Tar Heels, I I know you were watching or at least keeping an eye on the game against East Carolina. We entered as a 16-and-a-half point favorite. What was your reaction when you saw that we ended up not only losing but getting beat by 22 on the road to a team that lost to an FCS opponent the week before?
3: Yeah, I mean, to me, it was a sign that Larry Fedora is clearly losing control of the program. And East Carolina is one of the worst teams. I mean, you just said it yourself, Anthony, with that loss to NCAA the week before. I mean, this this is one of the worst teams in all of FBS. And for North Carolina to lose, and not just lose, but to lose embarrassingly, is just—it's a sign that Larry Fedora is losing control of North Carolina. And he had, a, he had the program rolling for quite a while. He did a fantastic job for the first several years that he was there. Obviously got them to an ACC championship. But one thing's led to another, which I'm sure we'll get into over the course of the podcast, but uh, it's just slowly started to unravel. And at this point, I, I don't think you can really look at look at what the program is right now and say that Fedora is in control. I, I think it might be time for them to move on sooner rather than later.
2: One of the things that I've seen a lot of people trying to say with these first few games is that the suspensions to start the season were really what has affected them. I want you to tell the rest of these fans what I've been trying to tell them, which is the fact that the suspensions, yeah, they have a little bit of an effect, but there really aren't that many starters that have been removed from the lineup. And There's not enough, in my opinion, to at least justify saying that we shouldn't have beaten East Carolina. Am I right to have that perspective?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when when the story came out in early August that, you know, 13 players were going to be suspended, it it sounded a lot worse than it really was. I mean, you lose your starting defensive ends, but you stagger those suspensions regardless. You you lose Chad Surratt, who maybe he would have started, maybe not. We don't really know. Uh, it really didn't have that much of an impact. I mean, outside of that, a little bit of depth here and there, but not enough that should, that should lead to UNC losing to East Carolina. There should still be enough talent on that team to get by one of the worst teams in the American Athletic Conference, period. And this is not an excuse. Uh, it should not be something that UNC and Larry Fedora can point to and say, this is why we lost. Uh, last year, losing as many guys as they did to injury, you can point to that, and, and you can use that as an excuse. You can use that as a reason why Carolina suffered the way they did. This is a totally different ball game, and yeah, it's, it's by no means a, a reason for Larry Fedora to be off the hook. It's, it's squarely on him to win these games.
2: Now, you've said that pretty much it seems like Fedora is, I, I, I guess, am I right in saying that you think he's all but gone at the end of the season?
3: uh i mean it seems like it there's i guess a, a way you could you could make a case that he stays on one of those ways would be if, if carolina somehow rebounds and goes six and six this season which would mean they upset probably miami and virginia Tech they would they would win some big games down the stretch I don't think anybody can look at the team that they they put out on the field in the first two weeks and and think that's really possible. Um, but the other question would just be if Carolina decides they don't want to buy him out. I mean, 14 million dollars is a lot of money for a school that uh, puts bas- or, sorry puts football rather on the back burner because of the basketball program. I think at the end of the day, Carolina's gonna gonna pay up that money. I mean, they, they while it's not Alabama, while it's not Miami, and the standard isn't national titles. For football, they still want to be competitive and they want to be relevant. And if they fall this far in two years, uh, you know, counting last season as well, I think that they'll find the money, they'll find the cash to buy him out and, and move on to a new coach who will who, give a breath of fresh air.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could definitely see it happening. The fact that he's 4-14 four and 14 in his last 18 games, 2-14 uh, and 14 against his last 16 FBS opponents. I mean, it's it's not looking that good for Larry right now. And especially with how he's performing on the recruiting trail, it makes sense. One of the questions that I, I think a lot of people have at the moment is, you know, right now it's reached a point where there's a lot of frustration. Would they move on from Larry Fedora in season and especially, I think what most people are wondering is, would they risk moving on from him right now, you know, maybe firing him here in this window that we're going to have now that the Central Florida game has been canceled? Yeah, well,
3: that obviously makes a big difference, you know. A lot of times you'll see those moves made during a bye week, and now it turns out that's what UNC has. Fedora's not going to lose his job before they play their next game next Saturday, but, you uh, when you start looking at schools that want to make a move in season, you have to think about the ramifications of that. And recruiting is really what I'm talking about. If mm-hmm. you make move now, do you risk losing a lot of the guys who you have committed so far? Um, you know, LSU did this a couple years ago, and they moved on from Les Miles and hired an interim coach. USC got rid of Sarkeesian and moved on to Clay Helton and had success with him. And you've seen some teams that that salvage their season, but you take a hit on the recruiting trail. And for North Carolina, I think it's important for them. I I would let Larry Fedora play out the season. They may lose a couple recruits regardless because they'll see the writing on the wall. But I think it's much easier for a school to replace a guy – uh, maybe you know they fire Louie Fedora in late November and then fire his replacement a week later. I think it's easier to try to keep most of your recruiting class intact than it is to basically cut bait with him in September, October, and then it's open season on your recruiting class for the next two months until you name a permanent coach. So I would actually tend to believe they'll they'll keep him through the rest of the year, no matter how bad it gets, uh, and then just hopefully move quickly uh, when the uh, when the time comes in uh in late november after their season's over
2: put yourself in Bubba Cunningham's shoes when that day comes who is the first guy that you are calling
3: Mm. so (laughs) I mean I think they could probably shoot for the moon and and try to hire an already established coach in a power five conference I I don't know who that would be but I don't know that anybody who has a pretty good job right now at a power five school is going to leave for UNC so realistically Scott Satterfield is, is the number one guy. He's the obvious candidate. I mean, he, he has the ties to North Carolina. He's had success in the state already at Appalachian State. Uh, I, I would give him a call. He's won a lot of games there for, for the Mountaineers, most notably coming so close to beating Penn State just a few weeks ago and then almost beating Tennessee in Knoxville two years ago. Uh, he has the chops. He's ready for a big-time job. Uh, the other guys that I would look at, Seth Luttrell, at North Texas is somebody who is not on a lot of people's radars yet, but has slowly taken North Texas from an absolute train wreck, into a pretty good program. North Texas has won uh, more games every year that he has been there. And he was the OC on the UNC team that played for an ACC title in 2015. So he was a part of the program. He's been around. And while he is a Larry Fedora disciple, and maybe that's something, you know, Necessarily want to align yourself with when you're changing directions. I mean, Latrell was obviously a reason why Carolina was successful back then, uh, and he's been uh, or he's done nothing to to prove anybody otherwise that he wouldn't succeed as a head coach. He's done it at North Texas. So those are two names that I like. If, if you're thinking about other guys, Greg Schiano I think would be a really good fit if they want to go the defensive route. Tony Elliott has had a lot of success at Clemson. He's probably ready for a uh, for a head job. I don't think he'd be their first call, but those are the guys that I look at as, as probably the first few names you would hear about. And um, if they don't get one of those guys, then it's really up in the air who, who they could where they could turn. And I, I don't know what, who I predict in that case.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, Latrell. I mean, here's one of the interesting stats. At this moment, he's actually out recruiting Fedora in the 2019 class. They have the 56th ranked class in the country. Carolina at 58 wow. so yeah how about that getting beat I, I know you know people will say well you know look at uh, Nick Saban you're supposed to have your guys maybe out recruiting you it's like well that's a power five job though at in the SEC at Georgia not a guy that's coaching in the Conference USA so um, right. yeah I, I think that's interesting there's a couple of names that I know fans have thrown out there um, and I, I, I would I, I would venture to say need, these guys are not coming there, um, which are uh, right now Brent Venables I know is one that I've kind of ruled out and uh, Bob Stoops, which I, I know he's not coming there. But um, both of those guys, would, would would you give them a call and just kind of gauge to see where they're at? I mean, Venables I think is a little bit tougher because of his son playing at Clemson at the moment.
3: Yeah. Uh, Bob Stoops is a pipe dream. Not going to happen. Uh if Bob Stoops ever comes back to the sideline, it's going to be to coach at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Uh, or and, and honestly, that might be the only job that he comes out of retirement for. But if it is, it's for a blue blood job. I mean, the guy won a national title at Oklahoma. Uh, he could, He's very happy in retirement. He's not coming to North Carolina uh, unless they absolutely throw a boatload of money at him. And they don't have that kind of money because they're going to be paying it to Larry Fedora. So their best hope is to hire one of those up-and-coming coaches either from a group of five school or a hot assistant brett venables he's never struck me as a guy who who would be a great head coach uh it's very rare that you see a coordinator who is as uh emotionally off the hinges on the sideline <laughs> if it's a coordinator who fits in as a head coach typically you want your head coach to be a guy who's a little bit more in control a little bit more presidential if you will i mean i think about a guy Granted, he's doing a little bit better in his second tenure as a head coach, but Will Muschamp was the same way. Will Muschamp at Texas and before that at Alabama, he was a guy who was fiery on the sideline. He was an up-and-coming coach. He was actually the coach in waiting at Texas before leaving that to, to go to Florida. And that whole stick didn't really play as a head coach. And he's doing a little bit better at South Carolina. He's, he's maintained his temper a little bit more. Uh, I think he learned from that first step. Vindel Vinyl Venables has been around for a long time. He's comfortable as a coordinator. He's highly paid as a coordinator, which is another thing. He doesn't really have a a big reason to leave. UNC is a great job. Uh, I think Venables is comfortable being a defensive coordinator, Not, not dislike Bud Foster at Virginia Tech, who's just a lifelong defensive coordinator, had probably chances to be a head coach, never found the right opportunity, I don't know that they ever would have been a great fit as a head coach. That's how I see Venables. I, I, I don't know that that's the route I would take if I'm UNC. I've just never been sold on him as a heck of a defensive coordinator, but it's two different roles. And I think Venables is perfectly suited for the role that he's in
2: right now. Yeah, you are definitely right that he is off the hinges. When you have a guy that is literally assigned to the staff to hold your defensive coordinator <laughs> off the field— having him as a head coach might be a bit of an issue. Um, One of the other things that's really interesting, I think, just in general about this upcoming coaching roundtable is that, you know, when you look at who some of the guys are that don't have jobs right now, there are names like Les Miles. Uh, Tar fans are really starting to get back on the train that Mac Brown may want to end up coming back to college football and coaching or Hugh Freeze, would you see any of those three options as as being guys that could end up in that job come next season? I would
3: not touch a single one of those guys. I I just wouldn't. I I think if you're Carolina, roll the dice on a younger coach who's Mm -hmm. full of energy. I mean, think about the, the coaches that are getting hired today in college football. It's Tom Herman. It's P.J. Fleck. It's young, energetic coaches uh, Willie Taggart at Florida State, guys that bring an attitude and an energy to a program that recruits can relate to. Okay, the, the, the era of the, the kind of curmudgeonly, old-school, traditional coach, fewer and further between these days. And Matt Brown did a great job for a long time. Outside of the Vince Young era at Texas, once Vince Young left, they underwhelmed. Well, I should say Colt McCoy. I'm sorry. After the Colt McCoy era, they underwhelmed and underperformed every year. Uh, after that he failed to recruit a quarterback they never lived up to their talent les miles was the same way couldn't recruit the quarterback position those two guys are almost parallel universe of one another uh i I wouldn't go after either one of those guys the 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 game of college football has passed him by uh now the other name that you said hugh freeze for a school that just spent almost a decade under the cloud of the ncaa Probably not the best idea to go after a coach who was fired for uh, calling prostitutes or whatever it was at Ole Miss. Um, I would steer clear of Hugh Freeze. I think Hugh Freeze's best uh, bet is going to be to return maybe at the NFL level as an offensive assistant guy. I I, I don't know that he'll ever be a head coach in college football again. Certainly not at a power five job first. If if Hugh Freeze is going to ever coach uh, in a power five school, he's going to have to do what Bobby Petrino did, which is go to Western Kentucky or somewhere like that, win at a high level. Lane Kiffin is doing the same thing right now at Florida Atlantic. That's the route you take. It's it's not often or really ever that you see somebody leave under the same sort of scandal that uh, Hugh Freeze did under Ole Miss and get another cushy power five job uh, without having to pay his dues first.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean uh, that's that's uh that's interesting yeah I kind of agree um, for sure I think you're you're right when you look at just now uh, you know we talked about the names let's turn to the job just in general and you asked this question last week um before we got to uh, you know during the cow game you know what where do you see this job ranking wise in terms of college football is this a good job or is this a job that Most people will look at and say, ah, their fan base really just doesn't care all that much about this job, which I think is is partially true, but I, I, I think there is passion here.
3: Yeah. I think it is a good job. The the question I asked was, is it a great job? Is it a good job, or is it a bad one? Because there's a difference between a good job and a great one. Mm-hmm. And 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 most people voted it's a good job. I would agree with that. There is an appetite for winning. They have resources. They have a name brand recognition of being you as being UNC. Uh, they're in a fertile recruiting territory, and there's opportunities to win. I actually think that the the perceived lack of uh, fan support kind of can be a good thing in a way because it lowers expectations. So at at Carolina, all they want to do is win eight games a year, maybe win nine, ten, or 11 once every four or five years, make a run, finish in the top 15 if you can, maybe make an ACC championship game every so often, Mm -hmm. beat Duke, beat State, and have bragging rights over those schools for a year. I think that if you can do that, they're really going to be happy. They're going to be satisfied. There's not a lot of schools, I think, where you can say winning eight games every year is going to be enough over time. I think if you, as long as you do that at Carolina, you're going to be secure. And a lot of these coaches want job security. I mean, you think about a couple years ago in the ACC, look at some of the coaches that they've hired in that, in that conference. You mean you talk about Justin Fuente, Virginia Tech, Mark Rick went to Miami, uh, Dave Clawson at Wake Forest, even Dave Doran at NC State. You're seeing a lot of the big-name coaches, or I shouldn't say big-name, but, but hot young coaches or rising coaches, hot commodities, they're coming to the ACC because it's easier to win, and the pressure and the expectations are lower than they are at SEC schools. What happened to the SEC is, the pressure and the money got so astronomical and so out of proportion that expectations are so high. At Carolina, you go eight and four, you're going to be good. If at you know, Mississippi state, you're going eight and four or at, uh, at Tennessee, you're going eight and four. Or after a while, that's going to get old. I don't think that would ever get old at, at Carolina. I think it is a good job. You, you clearly see a fan base that's revolting against a coach already. Uh, if this job was a bad job, like, I think Wake Forest is a bad job. Dave is doing a good job there, but all in all, that is a bad job. If Wake Forest goes three and nine and then Owen, you know, starts the next year Owen two, uh, Wake Forest probably isn't putting his coach on the hot seat. But at UNC, he is. I think that alone signals that there is an appetite to win. Maybe not to the level of Clemson, maybe not to the level of Virginia Tech or Florida State, but there is an appetite for winning, and I think that in in itself makes this an attractive job, especially for a young coach who wants to use this as a stepping stone to maybe take a a blue blood job down the line.
2: Do you think that the area of recruiting around here, which has just blown up over the last few years, do you think that has a bit of an impact on how people see the job?
3: Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean,
2: the, the North
3: Carolina is one of the fastest growing states in terms of population in the country, and you're already seeing that sort of re- be reflected in recruiting. And uh, Justin Puente, Virginia Tech, came in two years ago and made an immediate priority to recruit the state of North Carolina because he knew... First of all, Virginia Tech in, in campus is actually closer to Charlotte and some of the hotbeds in North Carolina than it is to Washington, D.C., or to the Tidewater. Um, North Carolina, to actually flip down on its head, UNC and Chapel Hill is closer to the 757 and, and th- than Virginia Tech. So you're in an area where you are very close to a ton of talent. You're two and a half hours from Charlotte. Mm-hmm. You're two hours from the, from the East Coast to Tidal Basin. I mean, there are so many – Division one prospects, four and five star players, pretty much in your backyard, you should be able to recruit at a very high level at UNC. I I think that that has a huge impact on how good this job can be. And the next coach who comes in, if Larry Fedora ends up moving on after this season, whoever takes that job has to try to reclaim that area, that radius around Chapel Hill before Dave Dolrin and more importantly, Dabo Swinney and Justin Fuente really just wreak havoc on the state.
2: Yeah, so uh, we'll we'll get out of this, and we'll we'll ask one last question. You know, at, at FNZ there are. Uh,
3: I don't know the whole history there, but as somebody who takes his fair share of heat for saying uh, critical things of the Panthers on a daily basis, I can see where fans will turn on a radio host quickly. Kyle has no problem with UNC, though. I, I think Kyle does see Carolina as a as a good job. I actually think it's more attractive than than Kyle does. We're going to actually t- take a podcast later this week where we're going to get into that. So Kyle and I are going to do, uh, on College Football Country podcast, we're going to talk about the, uh, the attractiveness of the Carolina job and, and debate it. And I'm curious to hear his thoughts as we get a little more in-depth on it. Uh, but no, Kyle, Kyle has no problem with UNC as far as I know. Uh, there are no, nobody has any naked pictures of Kyle from uh, on the Chapel Hill campus. So yeah. I, I think he's good there uh but i love kyle and uh he does a good job at fnz even if he might uh irritate a few fans over in the uh, in the triangle sometimes
2: well uh thank you for putting that image on our head that's uh, gonna take a while to get out but uh yeah thank uh thanks for stepping on though with us and talking about uh about the job and everything. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll definitely be listening, especially in the Charlotte area. You're uh, great at what you do, man. Just keep doing it. Don't worry about these fans that are telling you otherwise. Um, they don't, you know, understand just how hard this job is and, and how many, how much hours we put into this job. And uh, I mean, look, you know, you're, you're entitled to your own opinion. And I like that you're not afraid to bring it, uh, you know, anytime that you're on the air. So uh, thank you again for stepping on with us. Appreciate it, Anthony. Anytime. Hey, man. Yeah, you take care. All right. So, Josh Parcell of WFNZ stopping on to talk. I think the uh, the last question may have got cut off a little bit, but we heard a little bit there. I was just asking him about the co-host uh, Kyle Bailey, who does um, the afternoon show on uh, WFNZ here in Charlotte. He does Garcia and Bailey, um, and there's nothing no, nothing uh, personal. Just you know, <laughs> seeing that uh, Kyle Bailey has been going head to head a little bit with some of the fans in the fan base, and uh, just his comment that he, that he had on uh, on Josh Parcells. Uh, Tweet. So, you know, I was just kind of wondering, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, class act those guys down there at WFNZ. They do a great job. And uh, it was uh, great to have Josh Parcell on to talk and get a little bit of a different opinion. You know, Josh is a guy that has been in and around college football for a long, long time now. So uh, glad I could have him on to give you guys that perspective. With the game being canceled this week. What we are going to do, I believe we're still going to try to have a podcast at some point this week. I don't know if we're going to do it on Wednesday or if we're going to do it on Thursday. But we are going to have a podcast at some point this week where me and Zach will come on and talk about what is going on currently with the Tar Heel football program. We will not be able to preview this week's game as it has officially been canceled. If you missed that, they are canceling the game for this weekend. Uh, The game as of right now has not been rescheduled. Both sides were apparently working on trying to get the game rescheduled. But at this point with different bye weeks, it more than likely seems that neither team uh, will be able to make it work. And unfortunately, that game will not be able to be played this year. The Tar Heels will have a bye, and at this point, it seems like the Tar Heels will have two byes this season, and this bye week could end up being huge for health reasons for this Tar Heel football team, because as you guys know, guys that missed this past week included Michael Carter, uh, Aaron Crawford, who we knew about, Brandon Fritz, of course, who we knew about as well, but also guys Like Miles Dorn and J.J. McCargo, having a week off could definitely help those guys to be able to get back on the field for a crucial game against Pitt. Guys, later on here today, Sam Doughton of the Argyle Report is going to step on with us, and we will chat about the game being canceled on Saturday and about a few other things, including the Larry Fedora situation as he sees it right now. But for now, we'll step off on the Tar Heel on the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, subscribe to the podcast on Spreaker, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify the TuneIn app, iHeartRadio, and many other places. Follow the blog on Medium.com. Just search Heel Tough blog. Thank you guys for listening, and as always, go Tar Heels! Come on Sam Doughton of the Argyle Report. Sam, how's it going today, man? Hey, Anthony, how you doing? Good, man. So, uh yeah I guess you're uh, you're uh, getting the battening down the hatches and uh, getting ready for uh, Hurricane Florence, huh?
0: Yeah, a little bit. you know Chapel Hills pretty pretty quiet right now. Um, you know, I'm sitting on campus now. officially, campus is under reduced operations at this point. Obviously, the sun's still out. the hurricanes a couple days away from making landfall here. And I saw one track where it's not even gonna come here now, but there's another track where it comes right towards us. So we really don't know. Um, I'm riding out here in Chapel Hill.
1: So.
2: so
0: we'll we'll see what happens, but you know, not not a whole lot for Tar Heel Athletics. They've canceled or postponed everything um, this week.
2: Right. So you oh, know, yeah. I think that's the right decision because this, this doesn't look good. I think it's not. I don't think it's going to be a good storm
0: for anyone. There's going to be a lot of damage to it. Maybe not necessarily here, but in the eastern part of the state. And that's something you got to be mindful of.
2: Right. So yeah, um, we'll get to, we'll get to that in a minute. I, I want to uh-huh. start by asking you about last week and you know what you saw. You know. Just, just start by telling me what your takeaways were from, from Saturday's game.
0: I mean, my, my takeaways was UNC just was never on the same page with one another. They never, you know, got themselves ready to play, it seemed like. You know, it started out okay. You know, they, the offense, you know, went really well. Antonio Williams was doing some really great things running the football. And other folks, were, you know, were doing good stuff. But you know, it's just they. The second half, they came out. They came out flat, and you know, you felt like they they kept getting field goals in that first half, right. and when well, they should have gotten touchdowns. And it just the second half was frustrating to watch. And I think it was frustrating for everyone to watch, and it you know, sort of leaving everybody with a lot of questions about where this program can go from here, and if there's a place for this program to go. And of course, there's ten games left, or I guess nine games left now. Um, you know, plenty of time for them to you know get some wins on the table, but. It's hard to have any confidence they're going to beat anybody after that game. Except for maybe Western.
2: Yeah. Um. You know, how big do you think the ejection of Antonio Williams was in in that game?
0: Um. I mean, it was big because obviously he was their feature back and he was, you know, doing a good job. But I think it. You know, they they should have trusted Jordan and Javante behind him a little more in the second half. They really went away from the run game, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like Jordan and Javante were playing bad. Like they were, you know, they 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 just didn't get a chance to show what they can do. And of course, Jordan's a little bit different in the back than Antonio. You're not going to run Jordan between the tackles as much, but yeah, they they were having a lot of success blocking on the run throughout the game. And then second half, they just it seemed like they hardly did it at all. Yeah. They were running a lot of bubble screens and other things, and you know, have a class of Thomas Jackson. I there was one play where he just got gobbled up because it was just the wrong play call. There was two guys on their side of the field, and Mm there's one person to block, and that's. You know, numbers game. They're going to get their gun tackle them behind the line of scrimmage. And, you know, that, that's tough. And so if they kept running the ball, I think they, they would have stayed in the game more. But I think maybe they got a little bit behind. I think East Carolina got the kickoffs and scored. So they are you know, down nine points to start of the half when the offense got the ball back. And at that point, they, they changed their game plan and tried to score a little more quickly. And it just, it collapsed. didn't work.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you said it. I thought the run game worked uh, well throughout all of the first half. And, uh, yeah, even when Jordan Brown was in there, I thought they were very effective, especially running to the right side. But – yeah, I I, uh, I, I mean, that's, that's something that we could sit there and question in many games throughout the Larry Fedora era. But uh, yeah, I mean, especially right now, uh, you know, it just keeps seeming like it's a question of why are we throwing the football so much when this passing game is really struggling, especially when it seems like every play call in the book is really designed to try to get the ball at least 15 to 20 yards downfield. I mean, am I the only one that's maybe frustrated with the fact that they, you know, in some of these third and six, third and seven type situations, there's no routes that are trying to pick up first downs by, you know, getting to the sticks, maybe running a 10-yard a in or something like that?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, you're you bringing up a good point. There were a lot of situations where they were running, if they out Williams deep or they were crossing somebody across the middle of the field and trying to deep route and throw in a triple coverage. And in particular, it's frustrating because Nathan Elliott was having trouble with his accuracy during the game, particularly on the deep ball. He was under throwing a lot of those passes where he had people that could have been open and they were broken up because the ball was short. So, you know, when, when you have a quarterback that might be struggling with his footwork a little bit and you're not quite as accurate, you can throw some shorter routes to give him a little more confidence or, you know, make the footwork less of a big deal, you know, to get exactly right. There's more of a window for error. There's less room for the ball to travel mm-hmm. um, to get where they're going. And, but I mean I think like if you look at you know Fedora's play calling throughout the years he's always had a lot of it's always been a lot of vertical passing concepts and a lot of the wide receivers he has on the outside are speed guys that that's what they do best Yami yeah, mean, Brown that's very much what he's known for he's not a tremendous root runner at this point he, could, he he's known for his speed and getting downfield and other things like that but then you know you got you still got guys like Thomas Jackson that you know that's ostensibly what they what they're good at is you know cutting in and getting those short routes so I don't know it, it, I do think ECU had good coverage all day on the wide receivers. There wasn't really any moment where anybody got the breaks. Maybe they didn't have confidence in their ability to, you know, run a good, great route and get open on those in that short amount of time. Um, that, that would be my best guess at the situation at this moment. And yeah. so they'd, they'd rather take their chances using their speed, which I think they correctly decided they had more speed than ECU did on the outside um, and try to do that. And they just couldn't, you know, get a deep ball to work because the, the Nathan couldn't throw it far enough. Um so I mean that's and it's it's sort of yeah they're they're in different spots. The so wide receivers are really athletic, but they're young and maybe don't have the the technical skills quite there yet. They had when back in bug and Switzer were all here at the same time. Um,
2: yeah, I mean you know you mentioned it. You know Nathan struggled throwing the ball deep. He he really um, seemed to struggle with his footwork again on Saturday. At this point, you know, we got a little glimpse of what we're going to see possibly from Cade Fortin when he ends up taking over that job, potentially down the line. Do you think that there is any chance that at some point this season they could go to Cade Fortin, even when Chassarat returns? Because, you know, from what I saw from him, he's probably got the best deep ball on the team.
0: Oh, 100%. Cade's definitely probably got the best arm talent of anybody on the roster right now. But the question of whether, you know, they're going to go to him in any situation, I, I highly doubt we're going to see him for any prolonged series of time unless Nathan Elliott happens to get hurt these next two games. Because I think I think Nathan, you know, obviously, you know, you never know if Larry Fedora Fedor always likes to make the quarterbacks compete and can never decide on one when he has two. So when when Chaz is back, I think a lot of people would like to see Chaz get a chance to start, given how poorly Nathan's played these first couple of games. Obviously, Nathan can change that in the next couple of games as well. He plays great against Pitt and great against... Is that UVA, I guess they play next after that? like Miami. You know, Miami on Miami the Thursday game. night. Yeah, Miami on Thursday night. That's right. So yeah, if he plays good, the, he plays well in both those games. He played really well against Miami last year. You know, he he can submit himself in that spot, but obviously he has inspired a lot of confidence so far. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think Chaz brings a lot to the table as far as running the football that, you know, Cade doesn't necessarily bring, even though Cade has the better arm count at this point. So, it, it, it's, it's a tough decision, but anyway, I understand, like, the true freshman thing, and if he doesn't play in four games, you, know, you can pop that redshirt on so still have four years of eligibility left, which is, I think, would be a great thing for Jade to do, because, you know, he sort of roadblock a little bit. He has Richard redshirt and is and probably going to be their parent if Nathan, you know, doesn't stay the starter next year as a senior. senior. Um, so, it would be nice for him to keep a year of eligibility. I don't know if necessarily he's the best option right now. Like I said, I think it, there's a lot of things on offense they need to fix. It's not it's not just Nathan Elliott's playing poorly right now. And he, he hasn't played that well. I mean he's done some good things, I think. I think he's shown good leadership abilities. He's saying all the right things. Mm-hmm. The team seems to respect him a lot. And I do think he's been led out to drive by a couple of situations. His offensive line protected him better this weekend, but you know, he's still getting hurried a whole lot and that doesn't right. help. And like I mentioned earlier, the wide receivers aren't getting out their breaks quite as well as maybe they could. Um so I think they're going to roll with Nathan for now. They're going to stick with the experience. Coach Fedora's offense isn't something that's very easy for a true freshman to learn. So, you know, we'll, we'll just see it by ear. I wouldn't mind seeing Katie come out and play some more, but I don't think it's necessarily something anyone should expect.
2: You talked about it a little bit earlier. You know, at this point, where do you think that Larry Fedora's job security is?
0: Uh, if he wasn't owed $14 million at the end of the year, um, based on his buyout, I think he'd be gone already. <laughs> Maybe not, because public on him, you know, his personality doesn't strike me as somebody to fire somebody in the middle of the year. But I mean, the fan base is enraged at this point, and that probably doesn't do anybody any good to fire somebody second game of the season either. You know, he's still got time to turn it around, but I mean, it—he has the hottest seat in the country right now, and I don't even think it's close at this point. It's surely not close in the Power Five as to who has the hottest seat in the country. Um, you know, this is a program that expects. Decent results, you know. They don't expect to be a national title contender necessarily, but seven wins, eight wins a year, not outside the realm of possibility for the school. Mm -hmm. And he's not shown a ton of confidence. He's four for 14 in his last 18 games. Um, Then you you go to the record against the the in-state power five, not not even power five, the in-state FBS teams. He's one and three against. He's seven and 11 against them. One and three against ECU. Three and three against State, two and four against Duke, and one and one against Wake. Mm-hmm. He's got games against App State coming, and you can see he's playing games against App State in the future. And App State's been one of the best non non Power Five, one of the best group of five schools in the country for football recently. So it just you know he, he doesn't have a whole heck of a lot going for him right now. And, and and I said this you know at the beginning of the season. The good news is that he has time to fix it and time to correct it. But he certainly has an inspired confidence based on the adjustments they made game from Cal to ECU of being able to, with the current staff he has assembled, do that.
2: Yeah. I, I I mean, I have to agree. You know, Please. inside Carolinas, Taylor Vipolis, I think, said it best. You know, this team right now, with where they're sitting at, is uh-huh. probably lucky to equal last year's three-win total. Um, yeah. So. I mean, it's not good. Um, you know, we hope, of course, that that can turn around, but it's it's not going to be easy. And right now, you know, with what we're seeing from really the, the the coaching staff, I think that's where most people are frustrated. I don't think it's really that as much with the kids because I feel like they think the talent is there. It's just the situations that the coaching staff is putting them in, and and mostly, I, I think the play calling is what people are really frustrated with. But We'll, we'll move past that and uh-huh. you know focus on this weekend you know we talked about it right when you got on about you know the hurricane canceling I think it was the right move and I, I, I can you know basically take away that you think it was the right move too uh-huh. I don't know if you saw this but Danny Cannell says that he thought the school should have waited and they acted too quickly to cancel these games I, I mean am, am I the only one out there that thinks that this guy is just crazy I, mean, I, I- <laughs>
0: I did see that tweet, and I, when I first saw it, I definitely had the same reaction you did. That like, yeah, that's insane. Why are they doing this? And I still think it's he shouldn't have tweeted that. I mean, but I get where he's coming from because, like I said, I saw a track of the storm today where it basically spirals around the North Carolina-South Carolina border for a bit, and then goes down the South Carolina coast and turns in towards Atlanta. And so if it does that, we're not going to get anything here. But, you know, you're like, oh, my God, you know, UNC canceled this game. And so did State and they could have played and they're losing all this revenue and how unfair it is for West Virginia that they might not make the playoff because they don't have 12 games or whatever. And, then you know, that's going to be the talking point if that happens. But the fact of the matter is. Is that if by canceling the games now, fans can cancel the hotel room reservations that they've made now, mm-hmm. which frees up the hotel rooms for the people in the eastern part of the state that need to evacuate their areas to go to go somewhere away from you know where the storm's really going to do the most damage. They can't wait out 140 mile an hour winds and their homes on the coast or even 80 mile an hour winds. They got to get somewhere there. So by removing the hotel rooms in Raleigh and Chapel Hill and Durham and everywhere else in between that uh, people were staying in. You know, there's free up for other people to come to. and also it frees up first responders to go places and be able to stay there and be able to get to places to go help. So it's it, it's you know there's a lot of factors at play here, and I think that both UNC and NC State by canceling the games this weekend are being very responsible citizens of the community for the state, and you know making the right decision. Also, it pulls away emergency resources because you know there's a lot of emergency requirements you got to have mm-hmm. to run a game, you know as far as you know having ambulance staff there. you know, EMTs and all this other stuff, you know, event personnel, and sometimes event personnel can also have other jobs that might be helpful, and other things, like my roommate's going down to a hospital in Goldsboro to go help out, and he's part of some sort of emergency response deployment unit with the state, and, you know, some people who work event staff might do that. So it's just, like, there's a lot of people who are freed up by the games not happening to be able to help should, you know, what's expected to happen and have this catastrophic hurricane come through and play and there's just there's just more important things to go on in the state. And you know, even if, you know, the teams could have played this weekend, which you know might happen. And maybe the hurricane does do that spiral thing and it's, you know, perfectly sunny seventy five eighty here in Chapel Hill come noon on Saturday. Well, you know, the, the still like the that part of the coast in North Carolina is gonna be devastated by a hurricane at that point and there's gonna to need to have emergency people down there and maybe some people from the triangle can come down and help.
2: Right, and so yeah. I'm, no, yeah, silent. you're right. Mm-hmm. So I think
0: that's the right decision. I think Danny Cannell needs to look outside his own heart for a second and think about, you know, the logistics of it. And maybe that's not something he has to think about too much, you know, both as a former player and, uh, you know, media member. You know, we don't, I don't think about it in logistics that often for what happened. But I think, as I saw it pointed out by other people today online, it made a whole lot of sense to me. And that's where I'm sort of like, yeah, just, just think about it for a couple seconds, Danny. And, you, and you'll quickly determine that that's not <laughs> the, right, the right take to have in this situation.
2: Exactly. We all love college football, but yeah, uh-huh. I mean, let, let's be real here. There are things that are a little bit more important right now that are going on getting prepared for this. So with the cancellation, the uh-huh. the big question I think has to be for Tar Heel fans, what happens now on the suspension front, especially the one that I see a lot of people talking about is Malik Carney's suspension.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the, what I've read so far, what I've seen, is that the game doesn't count for suspension, obviously. So everyone's suspension gets moved back a week. But I think Malik was scheduled to skip this game coming up anyway, if I'm remembering correctly. He was scheduled to play against UCF and then sit out the next three or something because of the way they staggered it. Or maybe till Mom was supposed to play this and they're staggering at him later or something. So you're seeing the potential of maybe one of those two. I, I don't have the list up right in front of me at this moment. Let me try to pull it up real quick. But, you, you know, you have these potential of, uh, you know, somebody coming back that they're not, you know, expecting. Like we saw this past weekend, Brian Anderson was given a waiver to play in the case of injury because J.J. Camargo, McCargo, is down. Right. Um, in there, And they actually ended, ended up not playing, so it's still counted for a suspension. So he only has two games left, which is good. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, so expect everyone to move back a game. Um, let me let me pull up the list and see where people are staggered right now. Let me R- see if I can
2: find it. Right. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. No. Nah, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is like all. I mean, it's it's going to be a little bit of a concern just the depth guys getting moved back mm-hmm. because. You know that's going to be a five-day turnaround. That was kind of where everybody was like, okay, well, we've got the suspensions for the first four games, but at least we're going to have those depth guys back and ready to go for that Miami game. So the starters that have to turn around and play five days after playing will have those guys right behind them. Now that luxury is gone, so yeah. you know that that ends up hurting pretty badly, I, I think. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, uh, you know, just how how much that impacts really the final result of that game because I, I think Miami at this point we can all agree is probably the better team, but yeah I, I mean uh, at at this point it's it's just one of those questions that I think still has to be answered so. Uh, well, yeah. the good news is, is
0: I think we're getting there's a couple more deaf players coming back. Uh, Greg Ross and Trey Shaw both missed both their games so they're back. Right. So, you know, defensive backs are fixed. Obviously that. You know, the lineman play, you know, you really want to, you know, get people back for Bo Corrales is a big whiteout that can, you know, do some of the things that maybe the wideouts currently on the field can outside of Anthony Round Williams as far as, you know, going vertical and, you know, getting up there and also being a pretty decent route runner and being able to block on some sweeps outside on the runs and other things like that just because of his size. So definitely a big deal. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I'd expect – keep your eyes out on that one because I, I suspect there will probably be a couple more – NCAA appeals that five-day turnaround's a big one you thought of. And, you know, they the NCAA's been pretty lenient with all these so long as, you know, enough people miss the games <laughs> that they need to miss right?
3: for this. And so I
0: think you might see a situation where they go to the five-day, the, where it's like, you know, a voice of five-day turnaround they say, hey, we need, you know, five of our nine guys available because it's, you know, we're, we're short. And particularly if more people keep getting hurt, which is one benefit, I guess, of the UCF week is everybody has time to heal up. Michael Carter gets, you know, three weeks. Right. Um, Aaron Crawford gets a free week. Um, JJ McCurray gets a free week. Everybody, all the players that were out that maybe helped contribute to why the ECU loss looked so bad. Um, you know, you, you can never tell. Obviously, you know, a couple botch snaps against ECU completely killed drives. Um, and if you think of JJ's in there, it probably doesn't happen. But you know, just wait and see on this one. I, I'd I'd anticipate more announcements on that front, given how. Unusually lenient, the NCAA has been about you know being able to shuffle people around to keep people keep the team from being hurt necessarily.
2: Right. Well, you mentioned the injuries, and I I kind of agree with you there. I think it's very helpful to get some of those guys a little bit of time to rest. How serious are the injuries? I, I will start with JJ McCargo and Miles Dorn. You know, these were guys that were placed out. You know, pretty much on game day, that was when most people found out about uh-huh. it. How serious are these injuries?
0: Although, well, like the, the thing is, is, that unless you're Greg Barnes and happen to have a gazillion sources within the team,
2: <laughs> like most of us don't know because there is no
0: standardized injury injury procedure as far as like letting us know like who's limited in practice, who's questionable. Um, you know, basically, like the extent of what we can do is go to practice, you know, wait for interviews with the coordinators or some players and check to see who's wearing a red shirt out on the field for who might be limited. Um, you know, we have limited contact or whatever. And that might, that, that's like a lot of people who are high usage anyway, um, particularly running backs. Uh, so it's very hard for us to tell how serious these injuries are because we don't get much information from the team. And so, I mean, it's tough to say. The fact that they were game-time reveals suggests that they're probably not that serious. If If you're not hearing it from somebody – else about, like, how serious the injury is, like, cause it, it, that usually suggests to me it's probably going to be a week-to-week thing, right. which each of them, they're not getting surgery, They do let us know if somebody's out for the year, I will say that, so we haven't heard they're out for the year, but, I mean, so I, I, I view every injury at this point, unless you hear otherwise, is week-to-week. Right. Um, there's a...
2: Yeah, no. you know, Yeah, I feel. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, offensive linemen usually the, those are the types of injuries that you will see with those guys. Um, I know, I, you know, William Sweets last year was kind of just out of nowhere when they placed him out for the year. But uh, you know, you you don't really know what goes down down in the trenches just. Myles Dorn seemed a little bit weird to me because I thought, you know, there was nothing that signaled anything went wrong in that cow game. And, uh-huh. you know, nobody said anything about him going down in practice. So that just kind of seemed a little weird to me. But, uh, yeah, um, I mean, you look at, you know, Michael Carter, I think this is the area where we're going to see. Maybe he comes back against Pittsburgh. My question uh-huh. is, how big of an impact do you think he will have when he comes back, is it really going to have any effect? Do you think maybe at that point, that's when the coaching staff says, look, we've got all, you know, we got four guys now in the backfield that can handle Uh the load potentially. Do we, do you think that affects their game planning a little bit?
0: Well, it it might affect their game planning a little bit. I think the impact of Michael Carter is entirely dependent on if the coaches adjust the game plan to have in, you know, three blacks plus one. I sort of view Javante as sort of the, the guy they throw in there when the other guys are tired necessarily, he's not really a feature back. But at that point, you got a power guy like Antonio that has some speed, a uh, speed guy like Jordan that can tread outside. And you know, not really a scat back necessarily, but you know, not as between the tackles as Antonio might be. And I mean, you have Michael, who's sort of a blend of the two. And so you really have three nice options you can use in the running game, and you know, you can use them in the passing game as well, particularly Jordan and so you you got lots of options there and as for me if I was an offensive coordinator I would want to (laughs) want to use as many of them as I can run a lot of three wide two running back sets and see what happens or you know you know you know 22 personnel or something like that just you know try some different things out and I think you'll see more of those wrinkles when they feel like everyone's healthy and everyone's able to go um Particularly Michael Michael, you know, he'll be you know, in his junior year has more familiar with the playbook and knows a lot of the wrinkles and stuff that Fedora likes to run with tempo. So it's it's good for him to get back. But it, it all depends on the play call If the play call stays the way it is, you know, he's just he's gonna be just as good as Antonio was against ECU at his best. And so there's really not a huge difference there in what I expect out of their production other than, you know, they're gonna be fresher because they're able to switch them out quicker, which might help, you know, just them be just a little bit better. But yeah, you know, they're gonna have to, you know, call a few more runs, particularly in the second half, even when they're behind, to be able to do that. Okay. And, you know, maybe there's some read I'm not you know, I I don't watch breakdowns as much film as the coaches do, obviously. Right.
2: Um maybe, maybe there's something I
0: miss about why they didn't run the ball in the second half. But you know, I I, I don't anticipate a huge uh, <laughs> a huge adjustment necessarily when Michael comes back, but you never know. There might be a big
2: one. Right. So, the last thing that I wanted to ask, you know, we're focusing on the bye week here still. You know, when you look at it, how does this help, you know, mindset-wise to have this week off and maybe just to kind of step back and, and reset the entire season? I mean, it, it does. I mean, it, it helps that you're not having to deal with a really, really good UCF
0: team coming in. You know, former national champion, UCF. <laughs> Coming into town, uh, you know, the Pitt, Pitt's a decent team, but they also were a team that got the barn door <laughs> blown off of them against Penn State this past weekend. They're a very beatable team. UNC beating beaten Pitt every single year I've been in school here. It's my, I'm senior this year. So it, it's a team that, for whatever reason, they have Pat Nardis' number. And so it, I think they'll have some confidence going into that game, particularly now being the home opener uh, for everybody. So I think that's, you know, a real positive to look at. It gives them more time to break down film. Um, you know, me personally, I am a little concerned that maybe some players from that Eastern part of the state, and there are quite a few on the team, might have thoughts, you know, thinking at home and might be worried about that. And so right. that's obviously – needs to be their first priority. But it, it I think it will help them, like, not have to think about, like, oh, my God, we're 0-2. Like, what are we going to do? And, you know, the, the team still seems together, which I think is the best positive you can take of, you know, the fairly poor start. Is they haven't seemed to given up on one another, given up on themselves necessarily. Like they they never really lost fight in the end of the game last on on Saturday even when they were down by a lot on the road and dealing with a home crowd that was you know very very happy that they were losing. So it does it gives them some more time to do some community things to get back on the same page. It gives times for the coaching staff to adjust what they're doing and maybe figure out a little more what they have which I think has been, you know, a little bit of an issue. I think, there's, you know, there's there's still some feeling out of, like, what exactly do we have on both sides of the ball? I think, you know, there's some things that are pretty consistent. The defensive line, I think, is going to be consistently strong. I think the restarting linebacker is going to be consistently strong. But, you know, what are we going to get out of the, the two true freshmen we're rotating in the quarterback? And, you know, what are we going to get out of our backup safety You that Dorn's out and other things? So it gives them a little time to adjust to those changes that they're having to make on the fly. And so, I mean, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they beat that, you know, this coming that coming off this new bye week now, and you know I wouldn't be surprised if they gave Miami a pretty decent game after that. I think there's there's a good chance that this it could be a reset, like you said. But yeah, it, it, it's got. It, I think a lot of things with this team are going to come down to coaching. I think you like you right. said it earlier. The mm-hmm. talent I feel like is there. It's just a matter of coming up with a good game plan and having people buy into that game plan and execute it. That's really the important thing for this team right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it definitely helps that the two teams that are coming or or that we are facing, you know, going and and welcoming in Pitt and then going on the road to Miami, you know, that seemed to be two teams that, you know, Fedora's really just had their number. I mean, you mentioned it with Pat Narduzzi. He's he's beaten him every year that he's uh, he's been in Chapel Hill. Um, I mean, that's. That's just one of those teams that, no matter what, even in games where Pitt has played really, really well, we found ways to pull it out. Um, And and, you know, that's that's one of those games that I, you know, I was kind of happy to see, you know, to start the conference year. And now I think, as the home opener, you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of emotion. Um, you know, I, I really hope, you know, there's a lot of people saying that they're not going to show up, but I really hope that they do just, if anything, just for the players to try to, you know, energize them and, and show that they're there to support them. And, um, and then, yeah, on the road to Miami, you know, that's another one that, you know, yeah, I understand, you know, under the Al Golden era, why, uh, you know, Larry had their number, but even last year, you know, they probably should have been the team that derailed, Miami's success, unfortunately, you know, Jordan Brown gets stripped, but they, I mean, we played really, really well in that game. So, um, yeah, I feel like, you know, these, these are two teams that, that, you know, we've, we've had success against, maybe it gets these guys energized and yeah. I mean, if they can win these two games, uh, I mean, this that would be a huge reset to the season. So, um, yeah, hey Sam, uh, thanks for stopping by, man. Um, yeah. Sam Gar- Sam Doughton of the Argyle Report stopping by. Uh, be safe, man. Um, all Absolutely. seriousness, and uh, yeah, you know we look forward to uh, mm-hmm. seeing you back out there. And I think uh, now, you know, we're gonna be chomping at the bit for the twenty second. I think everybody's gonna be ready for that home opener. So. Well,
0: well one thing I want to bring up just quickly before we sign off is that. I, I do think that it could be a reset for a lot of the fans right now, because I think a lot of fans obviously had a very sour taste in their mouth right. after that ECU game. And maybe, you know, a week off of not having to worry about how UNC's playing and also, you know, perhaps having to, you know, be reminded of, you know, some slightly more important things than collegiate football perhaps. will calm people down and maybe, you know, it'd be a real uniting thing for the campus community and for the UNC community in general to come out and, you know, you know, come out to the pit game. I think, I think I, there are a lot of people who said they weren't going to show up the UCF game. I did hear that. but I, I don't expect that to happen in a couple of weeks. I think people will have calmed down. You know, I think we were, if we were at a nine FDCU game, we're going to be down at about three or four collectively as a fan base by that point, you know, it'll be simmering there. And if we don't play well, it'll go right back up again. But I, I think the team's got a real opportunity to change fortunes around, get some confidence back in themselves, back with the fan base, you know, people were running headlines. You know, like the fans were against Larry Fedora. Can Larry do, Fedora do anything to save himself from the, the fan thing? And I mean, when? Like, that's all he's got to do. And he's, and you, like you said, he's got two real solid chances against teams he's done well against them in the past for this team to turn it around. Anthony, thanks for having you on. I always, I always have a blast on your podcast, you do a great job, and I've been enjoying your write-ups as well on the Heel Tough blog, and so thank you for having me on, I look forward to talking to you real soon. All
2: right, man, hey, yeah, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, you do great stuff as well, love reading anything that you write as well on uh, Argyle Report, and then um, I saw you have your own podcast as well, so uh, mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'm having an influence on you guys. Yeah. You know. <laughs> just a little bit yeah. Yeah, we, we, we threw that one out Argyle Audio if you want to search for it only over on iTunes or on
0: Citra Feed you can go to argylereport.com it's one of our latest posts up on there you can listen to me and Kirk Meyer who also spent some time around the football team talk a little Tar Heel football and everything else on uh, campus alright hey, Sam thank you very much and have a good weekend and stay safe as well alright
2: man you too That's right, Tar Heel fans. I encourage you this weekend, watch a little bit of the other college football games that are going on and just take a breath. Be ready to go for September 22nd against a Pittsburgh team that Larry Fedora has had a lot of success against. Hopefully, the Tar will be able to get their season back on track. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. I want to thank Josh Parcell, Sam Doughton, and as always, Zach Hubbard, for stopping by today to talk some Tar football. Listen and subscribe to the podcast on Spreaker, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Follow the blog on Medium.com. Just search Heel Tough Blog. Saturday's game with Central Florida has officially been canceled, and as of this moment, there are no plans to make the game up. The Heels are scheduled to face Pittsburgh and Chapel Hill on September 22nd at 1220. You can watch the game on Raycom Sports or listen to it live on the Tar Heels Sports Network next Saturday. That's 99.3 FM and 1110 AM WBT in Charlotte, 97.9 and 1360 AM WCHL in Chapel Hill, and 106.1 FM WTKK in Raleigh. For anyone listening in the states of North or South Carolina, as well as Georgia or Virginia, especially on the coast, Please be safe this weekend so you can be in Kenan Stadium next Saturday. Thank you guys for listening, and as always, go Tar Heels!